For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Recorded live. Countries have denied internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free to air satellite system from ABR. The ABR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75 centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541 225 4659. That's 541 225 4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click the satellite system.
All right, let me prepare for the show. Okay, there, we're done. It is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan, and you're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is the 19th of February, 2015. That makes it Thursday for you calendar buffs out there who actually keep track of things like that, what day of the week it is all. But it is about 8.08 and a half out here on the Pacific Time Coast, and all that works out where you're at, wherever that might be. We're live. The difference between live and Memorex is you can participate in the show when it's live, meaning you can go to TheAmericanVoice.com or AmericanVoiceRadio.com. Look for the chat link. Click it. Follow the easy-to-follow instructions. Bang, boom, you're in there. Chat with the other chatters. Or you can, as I said, participate in the show by asking questions or making comments. But you don't have to. You're not required to. You don't even have to play Stump the Room, okay? You don't even have to chat with the other chatters. You can just sit there and watch them chat. Ah, but what fun is that? You can also call in. We have a new, well, again, I don't know how long I'm going to keep calling it new. (laughs) Because, uh, you know, I, I already have it memorized which takes me a while, but it's 855-566-3738. Now, we had the other 800 one for oh, years and years and years. But, you know, things change, and, uh, you know, you uh, you got to make changes sometimes. And phone companies are funny. Uh, if you've noticed, which I'm sure most of you have, because I think we've all had our dealings with the phone companies to one way or another over the years and one thing I've noticed is phone companies do not seem to appreciate their long-term customers. They all seem to always are hard my French but pouring after new customers. You know, the new customers get all the discounts, they get all the deals, they get all the good service, they get all that. And you, you've been there for five, ten years, screw you! You get no deals. So, the only thing to deal with it, and and they won't give you any. Even when you point out nice and calmly that, well, you do realize that I've been a loyal, paying customer for many, many years, and uh, I see these deals. Well, those are only for new customers. Yes, I understand that, however... Uh, do you really want me to be a new customer for somebody else? Because uh, that's what's fixing to happen here if you don't, you know. And they just, they won't budge most of the time. I, I Actually, I've never had a budge on that. So sometimes you got to just say, okay, I'll go be a new customer, and I'll get the discounts, and I'll get the good price, and I'll get the good service, and uh, <laughs> okay. So, you know, this is what happens. So the new call-in is 855-566-3738. I think it's just as easy to Well, I remembered it pretty fast, and I don't remember stuff real good. Well, stuff I do. Numbers? Eh, numbers, not so much. I Public school math. All right. Uh, enough of that. Let's get on to some news. Uh, well, 
Now, you saw the uh, the dimwit blonde from State Department. To be the CIA spokeswoman. I mean, this chick looks like a child, okay? Apparently, she's like 34 years old, which, uh, you know, turns out she was born in 1981. I was in core school in the Navy in 1981. Okay, you know, we have children, children, standing up there and telling us things like, well, you know, you can't kill your way to winning a war. What? Run that by me again? I can't kill my way to winning a war? Wow. So all through the centuries, everybody's been doing this whole war thing all wrong, right? Because the genius blonde from the State Department now has figured it all out. You can't kill your way to winning a war. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Do you know how we win the war? Yeah, we give them all jobs. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Well... You think she's the only dimwit in the government? I don't think so. That's right. The U.S. government now is demanding social media censorship. Right. This is what the problem is. Twitter. Twitter is the problem. This is how all these these youngsters are becoming radicalized Muslims that are blowing up things. And, uh, yeah, that's it. It's Twitter. And, and you know, you might say, well, what do I Congress and the White House are leaning on Twitter to censor Islamic State posts on its network. Representative Ted Poe, a Republican Nazi from Texas, the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on Terrorism, has singled out Twitter for allowing supposed ISIS operatives to recruit and propagandize on the social media platform propagandize oh so that's not allowed well then i guess it's time to shut down fox news and cnn and msnbc and nbc uh cnbc huh because what do you think is on there nothing but propaganda this is the way the islamic state is recruiting they are getting people to leave their homelands and become fighters all in 140 characters right yeah, that's all it takes. Hey, come join the fight. Join the lunatics. Let's kill some bad. Let's kill some. Uh, you know, uh, who? Uh, who? Who? We? Uh, let's kill some. Uh, uh, well, whoever. Yeah, that's good enough. Yeah, that's it. I'm packing my bags. I'm leaving my home. I'm going to join the fight to kill whoever. Yeah. Uh huh. He added there is frustration with Twitter, specifically over its refusal to censor tweets the government claims promotes terrorism. Wow. All in 140 characters. You understand what Twitter is, right? 140 letters. You can make as many words out out of 140 letters as you can, and spaces count, okay? Hey, there you go. That's it. That's where they're that's their recruiting. You know, if that's the case, then why doesn't the United States Army get a Twitter account and just shut down all the recruiting offices? Just start twittering at 140, you know, characters per twit. Say, hey, come on, join the army and we'll kill the other guys. Whoever they may be. 
Whoever Obama tells us to kill, that's who we'll kill. Poe and other members of Congress will send a letter to Twitter CEO Dick Costello this week demanding the popular social media platform shut down tweets attributed to ISIS. Costello admitted earlier this month, we suck at dealing with abuse and trolls on the platform, and we've sucked at it for years. Poe said the government wants Twitter to treat this the same as child pornography. Really? So, somebody's saying, uh, we think the Western world sucks and we want to kill them is the same as child pornography? I guess it is when you live in a whorehouse that's full of child pornography and pedophiles. I suppose you would think that then. Uh, man... Really? These are the people you elected? They think this this is what they should be doing while the ATF is trying to make all ammunition illegal? They think Twitter needs to be shut down? What do you think is going to happen if Twitter bends to this and says, yeah, okay, and we all go, yay, because those ragheads are all bad people saying bad things, and it's okay to censor them, but not me. Well, guess what? You're next. If you allow it, you're next. You know what? You want to hear about You want to talk about propaganda? Let's talk about propaganda for a minute. Let's talk about Fox News and CNN and the other shills on TV. How much about the Ukraine are you hearing? Oh, yeah, you're hearing... Oh, you're hearing... Oh, bad Russia is uh, doing this and that and this and that and the other thing. And, oh, yeah, they're bad. They're doing this and that and the other thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Why is that? Uh, Well, it's because the U.S. forces that overthrew the illegitimate Ukrainian government, which, of course, Ukraine was a Soviet satellite for 70 years, and has always been closely associated with Russia throughout history. Yeah, and guess when that happened? It happened during the Olympics in Russia. Right, during the Olympics in Russia, the United States government decided to overthrow the popularly elected government in the Ukraine. Now, you might ask, because 90... 98% 98% of Congress voted to give, give the Ukraine weapons. So what kind of weapons is the U.S. giving to Europe? You figure maybe they're giving them, you know, rifles, like that. Well, sure they are. United States Air Force. is intending to send 10 military aircraft to Europe. It goes about the A-10 TAC aircraft. They call them tank buses. According to Pentagon officials, it's done to increase rotational presence in Europe to reassure our allies and partner nations that our commitment to European security is a priority. 
wow, is somebody going to attack Europe? I haven't heard that. Who Who's in line to attack Europe exactly? And, you know, we keep hearing about, well, the European Union this and the European Union that. Oh, they're so productive. They're so rich. The euro's worth so much more than the dollar. Oh, yes, they're, they compete with the United States. Well, why is the United States still spending all its money protecting the European Union? Why doesn't the European Union put together their own stinking army if they're so rich? And if they're so scared of, well, whoever it is that's going to attack Europe. Oh, man. Now, uh, Wellman referred to the warning from Russian President Vladimir Putin, who said that the war would never end if Kiev continues to believe that the military solution is the only way out of the crisis. According to the German lawmaker, the conflict in the Ukraine may evolve into a full-scale war. I wonder what that would be like, a full-scale war against the Russian army. Well, I don't have a crystal ball, so all I can do is look back into the past. We could call it history. Let's see, who was the last group? Oh, yes, there was an elite military force that rolled through Europe and basically conquered the whole mainland of Europe. And then they decided to turn east towards Russia, and they attacked them. How'd that work out? It didn't work out very well at all. And who was that army? Oh, that was the Nazi army. Does the United States Army have any kind of, I don't know, parallels with the German Army of World War II? Let's see. Highly trained, well-equipped, very modern, more modern than their opponents, but a little undermanned. Supply lines real long. Sound familiar? Let's add, oh, yes, and overextended on too many fronts. Sound familiar? Yes. Good time to pick a fight with Russia, wouldn't you say? What could go wrong? Well, all we have to do is go look at history to see what can go wrong. Except, hey, what went wrong? Let's add some nuclear weapons to what else can go wrong now. Oh, this gets better and better, doesn't it? Meanwhile, pro-Russian rebels fought their way into an encircled government bastion and were battling street to street on Tuesday, all but dashing hopes that a European-brokered peace deal would end months of conflict. Folks, this isn't going to end, okay? This isn't going to end because let me tell you what happened here. The Ukrainian people, who are sympathetic, a lot of them are Russian. And the rest of them are sympathetic to, to Russia. Look, the Ukraine is about – I brought this up on the earlier show, and I'll, I'll mention it to you again so you get the picture. The Ukraine is about as sovereign as Oregon or Colorado or even Texas is sovereign. Oh, yeah, on paper, 
sure, they're all sovereign, blah, 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 except when Washington, D.C. tells them, let's, I don't know, let's stay in a state like, ah, let's call it California, as a proposition voted on by the people that overwhelmingly say we're not paying for illegal aliens to go to public school or to be taken care of in hospitals or to get jobs or welfare. And a federal judge, one federal judge says, no, you don't. And, oh, no, you don't. It's wiped off the books. It never happened, even though the people voted for it. How sovereign is California? Well, I'll tell you what. That's how sovereign the Ukraine is. Okay? Let's just say Russia decided to come into California and overthrow the government of California and put their own governor in there. How do you think Washington, D.C. would react to that? Not very well, I'd say. And what if they decided to do nothing? What if they were unable to do anything? Do you think eventually the people of California may get together and start killing the usurpers? I'd say they might. Now, that is who the pro-Russian rebels are, okay? The pro-Russian rebels are the people who believed in democracy and elected themselves a government that the United States government decided to overthrow through co-op, co- covert operations during the Russian Olympics. Now, it's taken them a while because, you know, I mean, here's people who are thinking, okay, we're peacefully vote, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll play by the rules, and uh, okay, we got our government, yay, okay, here we are, and then boom, here comes the U.S. military to come in and destabilize everything. They start flooding money and weapons in. Then they shoot down a commercial airliner so they can blame it on Russia when it was actually the Ukrainian, uh, the U.S.-led Ukrainian forces with U.S. weaponry that shot down that plane. So it's taken them a while. But you see, they are vastly the majority. The rebels are the majority. The Ukrainian... U.S. puppets, they got money, they got arms, they got Blackwater and, and, uh, you know, covert operations of the United States government over there helping them, but the majority of people are for democracy, are for the Ukrainian sovereignty, and they're called pro-Russian rebels, and they're starting to kick booty. think there's going to be peace there's not going to be peace so you figure uh you know uh yeah russia overthrows the california government the californian people start killing the pro-russian uh you know usurpers and then mexico says hey why don't you all stop killing each other and we'll help broker a deal yeah sure you will beat it there's not going to be any peace folks And why should there be? Why should there be? The United States came in and overthrew a legitimate government right on Russia's doorstep. Are you kidding me? 
And, folks, this is not – I've heard this put out there like, well, that's like if Russia came and, uh, you know, uh, tried to put missiles in uh, Cuba again. Oh, no, it's much worse than that because we don't – Cuba's not considered a part of the United States. The Ukraine was a part of the Soviet Union for 70 years. They have had a close relationship with Russia throughout their history. Uh, it's a little different than Cuba. It really is more like uh, Florida. You know, it's just unbelievable what the news has done to pervert the situation that's gone on in the Ukraine. And it's such a humongously important situation because we are talking a distinct possibility for World War III because Russia is not going to allow this to stand. The Ukrainian people are not going to allow this to stand. This isn't some jerkwater third world country in South America that you can push around and buy off everybody. And that's the way they're treating it. They're using the exact same formula they've used for over a hundred years in South America. Go down there, pass out lots of money, give them lots of guns and ammunition, and keep paying them, keep paying them, keep paying them. And they can put the... You know what? You give me enough weapons and enough money, anybody can put together an army. And that's what they've been doing down in South America. Now that you get that, you get some what we call euphemistically advisors, which are nothing more than special forces trainers to come down there and basically use the people down there. Some of us would say cannon fodder. Of course, the military calls them force multipliers. So you take special forces and then you give them the force multipliers of their own little army and go overthrow the government. This is what's gone on through South America again for over 100 years. And they're trying it in the Ukraine. Well, uh, for one, the Ukrainian people are not the cave dwellers that they are down in South America. For two, the Ukraine's got a big brother called Russia. Realize that while our president now has dragged his popularity from like 20% all the way up to almost 50%. Vladimir Putin has an 85% favorability rating within Russia. What, what do you figures up with that? Huh? Figures up with that? Oh, I know. It's just that Russian propaganda. You know, we've been told for so long, my whole life, anything coming out of the Russian press, oh, you can't believe that, that's just government propaganda. Well, folks, I really, really do hate to say this, but I believe it to be absolutely the truth. 
that no government on earth puts out more BS propaganda than the United States. None. Nowhere on earth. Nothing they say is ever true about anything. They lie even when they don't have to lie. Okay? Honestly, they lie when they don't have to lie. They could tell the truth and nobody care, but they lie anyway because they don't know what else to do. It's all they do. They, they, they never do anything but lie. They are pathological liars. But that just figures when you're a psychopath. I mean, really, what do you expect from a psychopath? We're going to take a break. We'll be back in a bit.
five and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $139. The second is a five and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $189. The third is a three and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $189. And our premier tabletop distiller is a three and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $250. All our distillers have a stainless steel boiling pot, dome, and cooling tubes. And the premier version also has a splash flap to protect against contamination of the cooling tubes. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com for more information and protect your water supply. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be dependent on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from ABR. The ABR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click the satellite system. Get 
welcome back. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stepp, and you're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is still the 19th of February, 2015, still Thursday. Now it's about almost 8.42 out here on the Pacific Time Coast. If that works out for you, we are live. That means you can. Radio.com. Look for the chat link. You can participate there. Now, uh, call in 855-566-3738. And look, I will really do my best not to forget your calls. Okay? (laughs) Honestly, I don't mean to do that. It's never my intention to ignore callers. I do it sometimes. I'm old. What can I say? Come on. Give me a break. Anyhow. Oh, yes. Dump the room. Well, they got the first uh, one. I played this uh, many times. Many times they got it wrong. But now they're starting to catch on, getting it right. Well, kind of got it right. I don't know. See, I'm going to be benevolent. And I'm going to give it to them. Because the guess, the guess was Rod Stewart faces Jeff Beck. Well, okay, uh, it was the Jeff Beck group, so I'm going to give it to them. And Rod Stewart is the singer, which uh, is not the game, but want to know uh, all about that? Go look it up, folks. It's pretty interesting. But anyway, the second one there, uh, several guesses, all wrong. No, it was not the Allman Brothers, but the Allman Brothers did in- cover that song by Elmore James. Oh, I play a lot of Elmore James, and so do the big bands of the 70s. Yes, <laughs> that's right. All these great songs that we think are classics by, like, you know, that one there, One Way Out by the Allman Brothers. You know, you know, wow, that's great. It's not their song. They just redid it and redid it very well. But just like Led Zeppelin. Gosh, they got a whole bunch of great songs that people, I do too, think are great. But they're not their songs. They just redid them. Most of the time, you know, I got to say, though, I like a lot of the the newer versions because you know they got a whole band. They got the they didn't write the song. Okay. Difference between doing somebody else's stuff. Yeah, it can be great. You know, it's like somebody who copies somebody else's painting. Sit there and you can take their painting or photograph of their painting and it to look just like it, make it really good. I mean, wow, that's great. Use new, you know, brighter colors and all that. Wow, that's really cool. But it's not the original. Copy. Make a nice copy, but it's still always a copy. That's the way I feel about it. I got to say, I like Elmore James's version the, the original one. 
most of what Elmore James does, I really like the way he does it. Some of the originals, eh, that's a, you know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't like it, you know, as much as i got to say, Elmore James, uh, look it up, folks. If you like the blues, you'll love Elmore. All right, let's get back to the news. Enough enough happiness. And I might add, with very good reason, how about this? You could soon go to jail for protecting yourself from bullets. Yes, that's right. So not only is the ATF trying to take away our bullets, a new piece of legislation was introduced in the House of Representatives. This is the Nazi Republican Party, okay? H.R. 378, labeled the Responsible Body Armor Possession Act. Well, Responsible Body Armor Possession Act, the only people that can possess body armor under this monstrosity is law enforcement. That's right which if enacted would deprive law-abiding citizens of another means of self-defense. Because you know what, folks, the bottom line is you're not going to go out and kill anybody with a bulletproof vest. A bulletproof vest can only keep somebody from killing you. And your House of Representatives wants to make that illegal. You shouldn't be allowed to keep people from shooting holes in you and killing you. The legislation forwarded by Representative Nazi Mike Honda would ban citizens from ownership of enhanced body armor, defined as body armor, including, get this, a helmet or a shield, the ballistic resistance of which meets or exceeds the ballistic performance of Type 3 armor. The body armor in question has the sole purpose of protecting the wearer from potential serious injury or death from being If passed, this bill would usurp people's ability to own a truly defensive form of protection with penalties for possession, ownership ranging from fines to jail time or both. In his press release, the Nazi representative Honda states, this bill allows law enforcement to respond to active shooting situations more effectively. The bill prohibits the purchase, sale, or possession of military-grade body armor by anyone except certain authorized users, such as first responders and law enforcement. In other words, nobody but government officials can have this. Wow, folks. This is your Congress. This is your Republican Congress. Is this why you elected Republicans? Really? This why you 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 voted for Republicans so they could take away your bullets and take away your ability to protect yourself from being shot? Oh, because it couldn't have been to repeal Obamacare and kick the illegals out because they're saying, "Oh, we can't do that." Oh, no, we can't do that, but we can take body armor away from American citizens. Oh, we can do that, but we can't. No, no, we can't get rid of the illegals. We certainly can't repeal Obamacare. No, but we can take away your bullets, and we can take away your body armor. Yeah, we can do that, and we can spy on you, and we can say that's okay, but we can't possibly. But it's... 
time to tell them to stuff it up their backside and say, you know what, I don't care what you say. I don't care about your laws. I don't care what you say is legal or illegal. I'm doing it anyway. Come and get it. As Americans reject fake food, McDonald's sales rapidly decline. Yeah, with 70% of the United States now overweight, the public is finally beginning to wake up and make healthy living. Modern-day diseases of have shown no decrease. Quite the opposite, actually. More and more people are abstaining from fast food joints to the extent that double arch companies came. Well, you know, what goes around comes around. Given it to the American As McDonald's once stable stock position plummets down into financial more and more families are boycotting the Franken food fast cha- food chain. Such shift has even caused the CEO of, Ex- of McDonald's to step down as news was released of continued decline in the company's most. Even though the world's largest restaurant chains might be trying to entice the public with its new board members and advertising campaigns, it seems to be losing its grip on the American public. factory farms which don't let the hormone-injected chickens breathe or sourcing low-quality pesticide-treated crops for its dishes. Maybe it's because food-like substances itself contain over 17 different ingredients that are virtually impossible to pronounce and are used in the production of things like yoga mats and silly putty. What? Yoga mats and silly putty in my food? Uh Uh-huh. Wow. Whatever is turning consumers on. Well, you know what? You know, this is a very optimistic. Well, Americans are getting smarter. Americans are getting more health conscious. Oh, yeah. Okay. Is that what you see? That's not what I see. Do you know what I see? I see people aren't going to McDonald's anymore because it's too expensive for crap. They're starting to realize that, hey, wait a minute. For the same money it costs me to go into McDonald's and eat lunch, I could go to a real mom-and-pop restaurant two blocks away and get some real food for the same amount. Yeah, maybe it's the money, you think? Well, what do you think, folks? Do you think Americans aren't going to McDonald's as much because they're getting smarter and more health conscious? Or do you think it's because we're in a recovery, which means nobody's got a job or any money to waste on garbage at McDonald's? What could it be? But... From Business Insider, they say on Monday, McDonald's reported global same-store sales that declined to 2.2 month on month. This missed analysis expectations for a 1.7 decline. 
In the U.S., the story was even worse for the fast food giant. as same-store sales fell 4.6%. My, my. That per month? If per month, uh, that's almost 5%. And if you lose 5% a month, it's going to last long. The disappointing numbers for McDonald's come as the chain faces. Last week, we noted that even the Federal Reserve's field work on the U.S. economy showed that consumers shift towards outlets like Chipotle and away from chains like McDonald's. Sit there and you can laugh and say, you know, garbage in a different package at Chipotle. Check their ingredients. They haven't come under the microscope. You know, and I, I did this story earlier, so I'm not going to do it all over again, but Kellogg. Okay. Kellogg, you know. All about a campaign. All about running a campaign. campaign? Is there a difference? Uh, I don't think so, because they're both full of nothing but lies. Yes, that's right, because Kellogg's new Nourish campaign, healthy moniker, appears on everything from granola to Special K. But, then again, that healthy moniker is appearing on uh, things that contain glyphosate, herbicide, and BT toxins from GMOs. Yay! Oh, doesn't that sound yummy? Hey, welcome to America again. So, let's say homeless people crying. Woman or kids or husband. Woman's crying and well, you know, we just uh, lost our place and we're out on the street. We got nowhere to go. We got nothing to do. We don't know what's going to happen. So you figure, hey, you know what, I'm doing okay, I got a little extra money, I want to help these people out, of course I'm not bringing them home, and uh smart enough to know, I'm not just going to give people a fistful of money, so they can't get into a hotel because they don't have any ID. So what I do is I decide I'm going to go over, I'm going to take my credit card, my ID, and I'm going to rent a motel room. Well, that's what these that's exactly what these people did. Where the temperature was six degrees with blowing snow, which was creating whiteout conditions. Bad time to be so an hour later, after you know, you drop them off and get the room and put them in there and say, well, good luck, see you later. You bought three days' worth of a room for these people. I hope you can get on your feet in three days. Well, the guy got a call. It was the security guard at the Super 8 motel that they uh, put these people in. He said the hotel had checked on the room, and when the couple couldn't produce ID, he kicked them out. I argued with them. I told them we paid for the room, even though they said they were willing to risk any 
The guard insisted that because guests have to be 21 to stay in the room and the couple had no identification to prove they were over that age, they couldn't stay. And then he ended the conversation saying, oh, no, by the way, your repayment is not refundable. Well, well, well. You know what? Widman Hotel Group, which owns that mine folks, hotel franchises. our portfolio to comply with not only our own brand standards, but also all local, state, and federal laws. Please know that we take seriously Please safe. I mean, is it really a safety thing, folks? This is America, folks. Where, you know, and what do you mean? You checked on the room? You know what? If I'm staying in a hotel and somebody starts knocking on my door, I'm not opening the door. Check on the room. Let, check on the Knock, knock. Let me see some ID. Screw you, rent-a-pig. I'm telling you, folks, you know, this is not going to end well. Because one of these days, one of these rent-a-cops is going to knock on the wrong hotel door and say, I want to see some ID, and what he's going to get is dead. I, for one, won't shed a tear. I may even want to celebrate. Honestly, folks, it's getting to be that bad. It's getting to be that far down the road. It is getting to be war. Start getting that through your head, folks, because we're already at war think we're not? Well, sorry, the federal government has already uh, concluded that the United States of America is a battlefield. Trading with the Enemies Act long ago declared you as the enemy. Is there another word for that other than war? Huh. Anyway, I got to go. I'll see you tomorrow afternoon. Stay tuned, and as always, thanks for listening. Young hearts, go that way. Can't put it out another day. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19, 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19.
Same network, double the choices. How do I love to listen to AVR? Let me count the ways. Listen online to your choice of seven streams by going to theamericanvoice.com. For those who don't have access to a computer, you can listen on your phone through our phone bridge Monday through Friday from 9 to 9 Pacific by calling 1-712-580-1100. Enter the code 97524-POUND. This is not toll-free, but if you have unlimited long-distance or cell minutes, it's great. Turn on your speakerphone so everyone can hear AVR or go about your daily routine while you listen online or on the phone. We're also on KU Band Satellite and on many FM stations, so look for us there, too. Go to theamericanvoice.com for more details. And while you're there, check out our news page for the latest alternative news. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories. After an airplane crashed into the World Trade Center on September 11th, television shows were interrupted to provide us with news reports. But these news reports were repeated over and over, day after day, without interruption. Show it to you again. We were told that Osama was responsible, and his photo was shown to us over and over. But how could a few men defeat our air defense system, and with four different airplanes? We were told that fire caused the towers and Building 7 to disintegrate. Show it to you again. But fire had never caused a steel building to disintegrate before. So how did fire do it to three buildings on September 11th? And why didn't they show the collapse of Building 7 over and over? Why were some events repeated endlessly while others were ignored? Well, at least the FBI solved the crime within a few days and released the names and photos of the 19 hijackers. Unfortunately, news reports were soon complaining that some of these hijackers were alive. Has this crime really been solved? Video of the plane crashing into the tower was repeated over and over, but we never saw Flight 77 crash into the Pentagon because military officials said there were no photos or video of that event. Everybody had to guess how the plane hit the Pentagon. Not surprisingly, the early drawings turned out to be incorrect, such as this one from U.S. News and World Report, in which the airplane is diving towards the helicopter pad. This computer simulation follows the official theory that Flight 77 flew a few inches above the grass and crashed into the ground floor. If you've ever tried to land an airplane, you can understand the skill this pilot had in order to fly so close to the ground at 400 miles per hour. Originally, the FBI claimed the terrorist who flew this plane was an experienced pilot for a Saudi Arabian airline, but they switched to an inexperienced pilot after discovering he was still alive in Saudi Arabia. 
But even if he had experience, how could anybody fly so low that he could knock down many street lights, a couple of which fell onto automobiles? How could anyone fly through this obstacle course? The area around the Pentagon is densely populated. Thousands of people should have heard and seen such a large plane flying close to the ground. Furthermore, only military aircraft are allowed in this area. So where are the thousands of witnesses? Why did none of the military pilots protect the Pentagon? While most Americans were demanding retaliation against Osama, a few people in cyberspace were complaining that something was strange about this attack and that we should not believe our government. Initially, I did not understand what these conspiracy nuts were complaining about. But by January, I realized that the World Trade Center towers and Building 7 did not merely fall down. For example, virtually all of the concrete in the towers had been pulverized into dust. I posted documents on the Internet in which I explained that the towers appear to have been destroyed with explosives. Meanwhile, over in France, a man named Terry Masson was analyzing the odd aspects of the Pentagon attack. For example, why isn't there debris from Flight 77 on the grass? Perhaps a view from a helicopter will help us find pieces of Flight 77. Nothing here but bricks and limestone. What are those round objects? Oh, just spools of cable. Those are not pieces of Flight 77 either. Those people appear to be gathering small objects. Where are the large pieces of aircraft, and the passengers, and their luggage? There's lots of rubble inside the Pentagon, but nothing that looks like luggage, airline seats, or airplane parts. This dog was searching for people, but there are no photos of it finding any of the passengers. How could a dog not even find one small piece of 64 passengers? How could so many people vanish? Did this dog even pick up the scent of a human? It's possible that somebody has photos that show pieces of Flight 77, and it's possible that photographers avoided the luggage and dead passengers because they thought it would upset us. However, the commonly available photos and news reports do not provide any evidence that Flight 77 hit the Pentagon. Hassan's conclusion was that the military was lying about Flight 77 crashing into the Pentagon. At the beginning of March 2002, news had reached American Internet sites that Masson wrote a book to explain that he could not find any evidence of Flight 77 in any of the photos or news reports. Masson accused the military of deceiving us about the attack. He believed Flight 77 never hit the Pentagon. Rather, a truck bomb had exploded in front of the building. A few days later, the military released five images from a security camera in front of the Pentagon. These images show an object flying into the Pentagon. This put an end to the accusations that a truck bomb had exploded in front of the building. Unfortunately, these images created two new problems. First of all, it proved they lied about not having video of Flight 77. They have video, but we can't see it.
second, and more important, nobody can find Flight 77 in these video images. Military officials were correct that releasing those five frames of video would put an end to the accusations of the truck bomb. But what they did not expect is that within minutes of those frames reaching the Internet, some of us started making accusations that a missile hit the Pentagon. If the complete video truly shows Flight 77 crashing into the Pentagon, why doesn't the military release the entire video and put an end to these accusations that the attack was a scam? Why don't they prove their innocence? Months later, Masson released another book, Lay Pentagate, to explain his newest accusation that some type of drone hit the Pentagon. The military was upset by his book, but not upset enough to prove their innocence by releasing all security camera videos. In September 2002, I further annoyed our government by releasing my book, Painful Questions. It provides evidence that both World Trade Center towers and Building 7 were demolished with explosives that were placed in the buildings before the attack. I also show that many of the phone calls from the passengers appear to be fake in order to deceive us into believing the airplanes had been hijacked by Arabs. I show that the terrorists were patsies in this incredible scam. Books like these are ridiculed as idiotic conspiracy theories by the majority of Americans. However, as Dave Von Kleist of the Power Hour radio show says, the real conspiracy theory is that Flight 77 hit the Pentagon. The reason is that there is not much evidence that Flight 77 hit the Pentagon. Let's take a look. Let's begin by looking at the five images from the Pentagon security camera. The first image shows Flight 77 leaving a trail of white smoke only slightly above the ground. The second image shows the plane crashing into the building and erupting into a giant bright fireball. The third image and the following two images show the fireball becoming darker and larger while rising upward. About 20 minutes later, while firemen were spraying the fire, that section of the building collapsed. Returning to the first image, if Flight 77 is leaving that trail of white smoke, where is the airplane? The roof of the Pentagon reached 77 feet, and the edge of the roof was almost 72 feet. Flight 77 was a Boeing 757. It was 155 feet long. It was twice as long as the building is tall. It was 37 feet from the top of the tail to the center of the exhaust. From the bottom of the engines to the top of the tail is more than half the height of the Pentagon. Hassan and many others have tried to figure out where such a large plane could be hiding in this image. The only hiding place is the rectangular post, but the post is not large enough for a 757 to hide behind. Let's zoom in on that upper right corner. These video images are low quality to begin with, so magnifying them will create grainy images. But despite the graininess, can you see anything that resembles a Boeing 757? We could settle this issue if the military would release all video from all security cameras. So why don't they? Why the secrecy? Also, notice that the time in the video is incorrect. 
The military uses IRIG time code to identify events, so they certainly know precisely when Flight 77 hit the Pentagon. So why provide a false time? The military announced they don't know why the time is incorrect. But is our military really unaware of what is going on at their headquarters? Or are they hiding the time code because it contradicts the official story? What about the witnesses who saw Flight 77? No doubt about it was American Airlines planned right into the building. No doubt about it? Who is this guy? And what did he really see? How can anybody be certain about an aircraft flying close by at 400 miles per hour? How did Flight 77 get to the Pentagon? This is another suspicious aspect of the attack. The plane vanished from air traffic controllers near Ohio, as shown by the question mark. Air traffic controllers immediately called for help. Less than an hour later, an unidentified blip appears on the radar screen near the Pentagon. Supposedly, Flight 77 traveled all the way from Ohio to the Pentagon without any of the air traffic controllers noticing its blip on the radar screen, even though they were looking for it. The Air Force did not notice this plane either, even though the Pentagon is off-limits to aircraft. If an aircraft as large as a 757 can travel hundreds of miles through American airspace without anybody noticing, what good is our air defense system and our air traffic control system? And consider that three other airplanes were also wandering around. Then consider that the planes entered restricted airspace. A group of people without any military force could send commercial airplanes into America without anybody noticing and then they could drop bombs on us or crash the planes into the Pentagon, office buildings, and military bases. While it is unrealistic to expect people to pay attention to these boring radar screens, after they realized that Flight 77 disappeared, they should have been able to locate it with their radar. They had nearly an hour to find it. It should also have shown up on Air Force radar. Furthermore, how could the terrorists find the World Trade Center and the Pentagon without assistance from the air traffic controllers? This is the cockpit of a 757. How would they know where to fly? Would they use a compass and a map? How would they see below the clouds? None of the hijackers were good pilots, according to the flight schools. The person accused of flying into the Pentagon was failing his courses at the Arizona Flight School but he continued to pay for training anyway. The New York Times quotes one employee, he didn't care about the fact that he couldn't get through the course. And how about this remark? I'm still to this day amazed that he could have flown into the Pentagon. He could not fly at all. The terrorists received financial support from unknown people. But why would those mystery people not care that the terrorists were failing as pilots? Were the financial supporters really trying to train pilots? Or did they merely want the terrorists to obtain pilots' licenses? Captain Russ Wittenberg was a pilot for the Air Force, Pan Am, and United Airlines. He flew both the 757 and the 767 airplanes that were hijacked on September 11th so he knows how much practice is needed to fly those planes. He is one of several pilots who doubt that the terrorists could have flown those planes so accurately into small targets.
He also doubts that the pilots would give up the cockpit to a couple of guys with razor blades, since that would put everybody in danger, not just a couple of hostages. He would at least expect the pilots to send a distress signal. Our government makes it appear easy to hijack airplanes and fly them into small targets. But many pilots and flight school instructors find the situation difficult to believe. When faced with such contradictions, shouldn't we at least conduct an investigation into what happened at those flight schools? To make the flight training more suspicious, Daniel Hopsticker shows that the flight school in Venice, Florida, had connections to the CIA and was operated by a criminal from Holland. Did the CIA help the terrorists learn to fly? Or were the flight lessons merely to fool us into believing they were capable of flying? To make the situation more ridiculous, a few hijackers are alive in the Middle East. Where did the FBI get these names? And doesn't the FBI verify names before putting them on the most wanted list? How can we use such a sloppy investigation to justify a war? Let's now consider the pilot's risky approach to the Pentagon. The Pentagon is surrounded by tall buildings, trees, and highways. It would be foolish for the terrorists to fly only inches above the ground. It would be best to remain a few hundred feet above the ground and then dive into the Pentagon. However, the terrorist decided to fly along the ground. The orange arrow shows the direction he was flying when he crashed. This photo makes it easier to realize that the safest way to crash into the Pentagon is to dive into it while aiming for the center of the five rings. However, the terrorist decided to fly along the ground and crash into the building near the helicopter landing pad. The problem with hitting this particular area was that his plane was coming from another direction, so he had to make a 270-degree turn in order to hit that side of the Pentagon. It would have been easier for him to hit Donald Rumsfeld's office. The risky, acrobatic maneuvers of this airplane is enough to convince me that no human was in control of it. I doubt that even the best Air Force pilot could fly a 757 a few inches above obstacles and at 400 miles per hour. Flight 77 looks tiny in this computer simulation because the Pentagon is the largest office building in the world. More than 20,000 people work there. Many cities do not have as many people as this building. The high concentration of people means that crashing an airplane into the Pentagon could kill thousands of people. What a coincidence that the terrorist hit the only portion of the building that was almost completely empty because it was being renovated. If the terrorist crashed into any other area of the Pentagon, thousands of people may have died. Furthermore, one of the purposes of the renovation was to increase the strength of the windows and walls to make them better able to withstand an attack. To summarize this, the pilot took a tremendous risk by flying only inches above the ground at 400 miles per hour, and then he hit the strongest part of the Pentagon, with the fewest number of people in it. An amazing coincidence. The shuttle shattered 40 miles above Texas while traveling perhaps 12,000 miles per hour. Pieces of the shuttle and the astronauts 
were found over hundreds of square miles. By comparison, the passengers and debris from Flight 77 were confined to a very tiny area. But where are the pieces? There were only seven astronauts, but pieces of their bodies were found. There were 64 people on Flight 77, but there is no sign of their bodies or even their blood. This area is the corridor between rings. There is nothing in this rubble that looks like Flight 77 or pieces of luggage. This hole was supposedly created by Flight 77, but nothing in the rubble would support such a theory. Another photo of building materials and office furniture, not pieces of airplanes. Going inside the offices, the only rubble we find is a... There are only a few photos that show scraps that appear to be from an airplane. For example, this is supposedly a piece of the skin of Flight 77. However, this metal seems too thin to belong to such a large airplane. These planes are 155 feet long and 60 tons when empty. The engines are 9 feet in diameter and they have some heavy steel components. The small figure next to the engines is a 6 foot tall man to show how large these engines are. The landing gear also contains massive metal components. Even if this scrap belongs to Flight 77, where is the rest of the airplane? How can 60 tons of metal disappear? Water can easily vaporize and drift away in the breeze, but airplanes do not vaporize. Flight 77 also had several tons of people and luggage. Where are they? This delicate scrap looks like it belongs to a global hawk or similar sized drone or missile, not a Boeing 757. The circular object behind the fireman is supposedly part of the engine of Flight 77. Only one of these engine objects was found, but Flight 77 had two large engines, not one small engine. Is it a coincidence that a Global Hawk has just one small engine? This piece of landing gear was found inside the Pentagon. This tire rim was also found inside. Unfortunately, these scraps do not prove that Flight 77 crashed into the Pentagon. A Global Hawk also has tires and landing gear. Is this a piece of Flight 77? It would be helpful if the military would release high-quality photos of these pieces so that we could see them clearly. So why doesn't the military provide better photos? Perhaps because a high-quality photo of this item would show us that it's so small and delicate that it looks like it belongs to a global hawk. Here is another thin piece of metal that would fit better on a global hawk than a 757. Furthermore, a 757 would leave a total of 60 tons of scrap, not just a few pieces that were so thin that people could pick them up without effort. These tiny scraps of aircraft would make sense if a Global Hawk crashed into the Pentagon because the Global Hawk was designed to be extremely lightweight. One reason for its low weight is to allow it to remain in the air for a very long time so it can observe people on the ground for long periods. It can remain in the air for as long as 35 hours. Another reason for its low weight is to reduce the power requirements of the engine which in turn reduces the noise and heat from the engine. This makes it difficult for people to hear it or pick it up with infrared sensors. 
A global hawk is like an eggshell with an engine. Christopher Bolin of the American Free Press spoke with Steve Riskus, who saw the plane hit the Pentagon and took these photos of the fire before the firemen arrived. Steve said the plane flew by his windshield, but he did not hear much noise. This could be used as evidence that a global hawk or similar quiet aircraft hit the Pentagon. By comparison, the first plane to crash into the World Trade Center was recorded on video because a cameraman heard the plane before it reached him. The microphone of his video recorder also picked up the sound of its engines. However, that plane never came closer to him than about a thousand feet, whereas the plane at the Pentagon was only inches above the cars. A video available at Blockbuster Video Stores shows the first airplane hitting the towers. The video is called 9-11, the filmmaker's commemorative edition. Here is a sample of it. That airplane never came closer to the people than about a thousand feet, but we can clearly hear it. If a Boeing 757 flew 400 miles per hour, only inches above the cars, the noise would have been deafening. Also, people would have felt the vibration from the engines, the turbulence from the wings, and the exhaust from the engines. This photo resembles those from other disasters. Specifically, most of the people are dressed to deal with fire or they have gloves and work boots. There are no secretaries in high-heeled shoes, nor are there any children. However, a few photos show executives wandering around among the firemen. Who are these two guys? Why are they picking up scraps? They do not have gloves on, nor work boots. They are holding the parts away from their body, which is a sign that they are worried about getting their clothes dirty. So why are they walking around in the firefighting foam, water, human body parts, and sharp scraps of airplanes? Why are they so concerned about finding scraps of Flight 77 that they will rush out among the firemen to help them pick up a few scraps? The police are supposed to arrest people who pick up evidence. For example, on February 4, 2003, two people were arrested for picking up space shuttle debris. They faced 10 years in prison and an incredible fine. Why didn't the police arrest these guys? Are these the FBI investigators? If so, why didn't they let the workers with gloves and boots pick the scraps up? A Boeing 757 would leave 60 tons of scrap, in which case these two guys would not be able to contribute anything significant to the cleanup. But if a global hawk crashed into the Pentagon, there would be only four tons of scrap. Furthermore, since more than 50% of a global hawk is carbon fiber and resin rather than aluminum, if most of the non-metallic material burned, there would be less than two tons of scrap. This would explain the mystery of why there are so few scraps. However, a global hawk has aluminum in the body. Any large pieces of aluminum would have to be hidden because they would not look like pieces of a Boeing 757. What a coincidence that some guys carried away a large box hidden behind a tarp. Some of these guys are overweight. There was no shortage of younger guys in better physical shape, many of whom had gloves and boots. Why would these guys carry away this secret item? What is inside this box 
and where did they take it? Why the secrecy if the military has nothing to hide? As if there were not enough strange aspects to the scraps, a news helicopter shows a line of people picking up small items from the grass. Who are these people? They are not firemen or policemen. Why are they picking up evidence at a disaster? This very rapid cleanup also happened at the World Trade Center. At both the Pentagon and the World Trade Center, the cleanup crews were on the site immediately and removed the evidence before the investigators could look at it. At the Pentagon, some of the cleanup crew were executives. If a global hawk crashed into the Pentagon, the pieces of carbon fiber would have to be picked up quickly because if somebody had found a piece... Hey, this ain't no American Airlines 757. We just got hit by some high-tech aircraft. Perhaps the reason Flight 77 vanished from radar near Ohio was because it landed at a military base in the area. Then a global hawk may have been sent up to replace it. Since a global hawk can fly above 60,000 feet, it could fly from Ohio to the Pentagon above the commercial airplanes. Since it is small and more than 50% carbon fiber, it is not as noticeable on radar as commercial airplanes, especially not when flying at 60,000 feet. This would explain why the air traffic controllers never noticed it on their radar as it traveled to the Pentagon. It also flies at 400 miles per hour, which is the speed the military claims Flight 77 was flying when it hit the Pentagon. Seismic sensors are buried around the world for measuring earthquakes and other events. The sensors are so sensitive that many of them picked up the airplanes as they crashed into the World Trade Center, and they picked up the crash in Pennsylvania. They also picked up the collapse of the towers and the collapse of Building 7. However, there is no seismic data for the airplane crashing into the Pentagon. The scientists who analyzed the data reported, despite detailed analysis of the data, we could not find a clear seismic signal. A seismic station near the Pentagon does not show any clear sign of an airplane crash. A different station shows a blip that might be an airplane crash at 9.39. And a third station shows nothing. The blip in the middle graph, which I colored red to make more visible, appears to be a possible airplane crash, but the scientists who analyzed the data claim that it occurred at too high a frequency. The question this leads us to is, would the frequency be too high for the explosion of a missile? Six global hawks were built as of December 2002, so if one of them crashed into the Pentagon, there should be one less in the inventory. Christopher Bolin spoke with the Air Force in December 2002, and they admitted that two Global Hawks were lost in ongoing operations. Not surprisingly, the Air Force refused to explain what in ongoing operations means. As previously mentioned, Flight 77 vanished from air traffic controllers near Ohio. Nearly an hour later, it was noticed on radar near Washington, D.C. It was dropping from a high altitude. CBS News describes it as a downward spiral, turning almost a complete circle. 
How do we explain the sudden appearance of Flight 77? Perhaps because it was actually one of the missing global hawks, not Flight 77. If a global hawk flew from Ohio to the Pentagon above 60,000 feet, it would not be easy to see on radar until it descended to below 10,000 feet. Flight 77 dropped to treetop level and headed towards the Pentagon. But where are the witnesses who heard the tremendous roar of its jet engines? The lack of noise suggests that Flight 77 was actually one of the missing global hawks, which are very quiet. As the global hawk crossed into Pentagon property, a missile may have been fired at it. Perhaps the Pentagon has missiles in its security system. The missile would have shattered the global hawk and incinerated most of its carbon fiber. But just in case small pieces survived, people would have to check for scraps. The fuselage has an aluminum frame, so if a large piece of it survived, it would have to be quickly hidden also. While a global hawk and a missile can explain what happened at the Pentagon, where are the passengers and crew of Flight 77? Before trying to answer that question, consider that the bodies of the Pentagon employees who died in the attack were shipped to a morgue in Virginia, and then they were shipped to a morgue in Dover, Delaware. Why the shuffling of dead bodies? Next, consider that dental records, DNA analysis, and other methods were used at Dover, Delaware to identify the body parts, and the investigators claimed to have identified body parts of the passengers of Flight 77. How did passengers from Flight 77 end up at Dover when not even a dog could find them at the Pentagon? Perhaps Flight 77 landed near Ohio, and everybody was put into a room with a bomb. Their bodies could then be shipped to the morgue in Dover, Delaware, at the same time the dead Pentagon employees were being shipped to Dover. The people in Dover would never realize that the bodies were coming from different locations. Building 7 was a 47-story building with a steel frame. No airplane crashed into it, nor did the towers fall onto it. However, this building disintegrated on September 11th. This satellite image shows the World Trade Center about a year before the attack. Building 7 is a tall building at the top. Building 1 is the North Tower. You can distinguish it from the South Tower by its antenna. Buildings 4, 5, and 6 were office buildings. Building 3 was a hotel. The attack on September 11th destroyed all seven of these buildings, and it damaged a few of the surrounding buildings. Here is a view from an airplane of the rubble of Building 7. The pile is very small. How did a 47-story steel building crumble into such a tiny pile of rubble? Our government believes that fire caused it to disintegrate. Fires erupted in Building 7 about 9 in the morning, a few moments after the plane crashed into the South Tower. The fires burned all day. This photo shows the fires at 3 p.m. The fires are not easy to see because they are small, and there's lots of dust and smoke in the air. Nearby buildings and reflections make it difficult to figure out where Building 7 is, so I'll fade out the other buildings for a moment so that you can see Building 7 more clearly. 
There are only a few flames in only a few of the thousands of windows of this large building. Most floors do not have fires, and the floors that do are burning only in a few small areas. Compared to other office fires, these are small. Why didn't the sprinkler system extinguish them? This photograph shows the rear of Building 7. This side of the building doesn't have many fires either. There are no fires anywhere along the base of the building. Incidentally, in the background of this photograph are Buildings 5 on the left and 6 on the right. Both of those buildings have very serious fires burning inside them. It is interesting to note that our government has never bothered to explain how Building 5 ended up with such serious fires. Despite the fact that the fires in Building 7 were so small that the sprinkler system should have extinguished them, at about 5.30 in the evening, the building suddenly crumbled into a pile of rubble. How did a few little fires cause Building 7 to crumble? According to Bill Manning, editor-in-chief of Fire Engineering, a magazine for fire departments, fire has never destroyed a steel building. So how did a fire do what it had never done before? Perhaps you wonder if incompetent architects designed this building with delicate steel beams. If so, take a look at the beam with the numeral 7 spray-painted on its end. To say the beams in Building 7 were massive would be an understatement. This building was straddling an electrical substation for the city, so it had some of the thickest steel beams of any building on the planet. At the upper left corner is a standard I-shaped beam. It would be considered massive in most buildings, but it seems delicate next to the biggest beams of Building 7. As is typical in the design of buildings, bridges, and most industrial products, Building 7 was designed with more strength than it actually needed. So how did a building with such massive steel framework disintegrate into such a tiny pile of rubble from a few tiny fires? A government agency, FEMA, conducted an investigation into why the buildings in the World Trade Center collapsed. However, the editor of Fire Engineering magazine became so disgusted by the investigation that the January 2002 issue carried an angry article in which he accused the investigation of being a half-baked farce. Later that month, both Bush and Cheney asked Tom Daschle to limit the investigation. Apparently, a half-baked farce was more of an investigation than Bush and Cheney wanted. I suppose they would have preferred a quarter-baked farce. In March 2002, the Committee on Science of the House of Representatives held a meeting to investigate the investigation. There were more insults and accusations at this meeting. For example, Congressman Bollard complained that the investigation seems shrouded in excessive secrecy. Professor Corbett complained that they were trying to run an investigation with part-time engineers and scientists and on a shoestring budget. There were also accusations that landlords and insurance companies interfered with the investigation. It seems that a lot of people were helping President Bush ruin the investigation. During April 2002, the final bits of rubble from the World Trade Center were removed. 
the thick pieces of steel were sold to foreign nations as scrap metal and at a very low price, while the less valuable pieces were shipped by barge to be buried. By May 2002, the World Trade Center had been cleaned up and all the rubble destroyed, so nobody could conduct any further investigations into how the buildings collapsed. The editor of Fire Engineering wrote months earlier that this destruction of rubble is illegal. He pointed out that our laws demand rubble be saved from major disasters so that we can learn what happened and improve our buildings and fire prevention techniques. Our government violated the law when it destroyed the rubble from... Here are some of the government officials who tried to impeach President Clinton. Tens of millions of Americans were outraged when Clinton lied to us about what he and Monica were doing. These Americans proudly boasted that they are law-abiding citizens, and they will not tolerate government officials who cheat, lie, or deceive. Yet millions of these same Americans either helped our government violate laws during the investigation of the World Trade Center collapse, or those who were not actively helping with the illegal activities were ignoring them. Ken Starr spent $40 million investigating the sexual activities of President Clinton. Why didn't Ken Starr advocate giving money to the investigators of the World Trade Center collapse so that they didn't have to depend on part-time scientists and on a shoestring budget? In May 2002, FEMA released the report on the collapse of the buildings. Not surprisingly, the report doesn't explain anything. For example, rather than explain how the fires caused Building 7 to collapse, the FEMA report has this. The specifics of the fires in Building 7 and how they caused the building to collapse remain unknown at this time. Our government spent seven months investigating the collapse of the World Trade Center buildings, and at the end, they announced they have no idea what happened to Building 7. If FEMA was a private company, I would demand my money back. Since they are a government agency, their worthless report is evidence that they are involved in covering up a scam. FEMA claims that they cannot understand how Building 7 collapsed but perhaps you and I can figure it out by watching the videos of it collapsing. Incidentally, this video is lousy because it comes from people who recorded the TV news. As with the security video that shows Flight 77 crashing into the Pentagon, nobody wants to provide good quality video of Building 7 as it collapses. At the top of Building 7 is a rectangular penthouse that contains air conditioning and other equipment. If you recall, the fires were on the lower floors, not near the roof. However, the penthouse is the first part of the building to collapse. How could the fires cause damage to the penthouse without damaging all the floors in between? Here's a different view of the collapse. And another view, when fires cause steel buildings to crumble, do they normally produce this much dust? Well, since fire has never caused a steel building to crumble before, I guess we'll never know if this dust is typical. The person who took this next video decided to point his camera at Building 7 
at just the right moment. If you've never seen a demolition of an old building, there's a DVD called What a Blast that shows how buildings are demolished. Notice that the dust comes from the base of the building, just as with Building 7. Also, the building falls down very quickly because the pieces are free-falling. They often cause the middle of the building to fall first in order to pull the outer walls inward. CBS has a documentary called America Rebuilds, in which Larry Silverstein, the landlord of Building 7, explains what happened. I remember getting a call from the uh, fire department commander telling me that they were not sure they were going to be able to contain the fire. I said, you know, we've had such a terrible loss of life. It is what I seem to is pull. Uh, and they made that decision to pull, uh, and we watched the building collapse. Which is more believable, FEMA claiming they have no idea what happened to Building 7, or Silverstein claiming that the fire department demolished the building rather than bother putting out the fires, and without giving the tenants the opportunity to remove their documents and equipment? Now that you've seen how the building collapsed, do you think these tiny fires were responsible? If so, how did the fire destroy the entire steel structure? Building 7 collapsed in the same manner that demolition companies destroy old buildings. They use explosives to shatter the joints, holding the steel beams together. The explosives are detonated in a sequence that causes the building to fall vertically downward into a tiny pile of rubble. Also, when the building is tall, the explosives are often timed to destroy the interior of the building before the exterior walls are broken, thereby causing the interior section to fall first. As the interior pieces fall, they pull the exterior walls towards the interior. This creates a small pile of rubble with the exterior walls laying on top of the rubble. Photos of the rubble from Building 7 show exactly that, namely the exterior walls on top of the interior pieces. Normally, if a 47-story steel building crumbled into a pile of rubble because of a couple of tiny fires, people around the world would be shocked and want to know what happened. Architects would be interested in understanding what happened so that they could design buildings better. People who live or work in tall buildings would wonder, can fire do this to my building? However, are any architects asking why Building 7 fell down? Are any people in tall buildings wondering if their building might also fall down? Why does nobody care that a steel building disintegrated for no apparent reason? Part of the problem is that most people simply don't know much about Building 7 due to the incredible secrecy surrounding this building. We were frequently told of the evilness of Osama and Saddam, but how often did you see the collapse of Building 7? How many articles did you find in newspapers or magazines about Building 7? The only explanation for this secrecy that I can think of is that nobody can explain how Osama caused Building 7 to collapse. By keeping this issue a secret, they are hoping that people will forget about the incident rather than ask, what happened to Building 7? 
One possible reason for the secrecy about Building 7 is that it may have been the control center for demolishing the World Trade Center. The 23rd floor of this building was given $15 million worth of renovations to make it into an emergency command center for Mayor Giuliani. For example, it was given bullet and bomb-resistant windows. There is nothing strange about adding reinforcements to a government office to protect them in case of attack. In fact, many retail businesses have bullet-resistant windows. However, this particular office had its own air and water supply, and it was designed to withstand winds of 160 miles per hour. To make the situation more suspicious, the reinforcements were only for this one floor, so that meant most of the building was just an ordinary office building. Why would they protect only one floor? This seems as silly as installing bulletproof glass in only one window of the president's automobile. Furthermore, why would they need their own air supply? And how about the protection from a 160-mile-per-hour wind? Well, consider that when the towers fell down, clouds of dust and grit were thrown outward at a very high speed. The only people protected from that blast were in this special emergency command center. Of course, the city government claims the entire building was evacuated at 9 in the morning, so nobody was inside this special reinforced bunker when the towers collapsed. This meant that the city spent $15 million to make this special reinforced bunker, and then everybody abandoned it just when it would have been useful. But did everybody really abandon Building 7? It would have been a great place for people to supervise the attack because the 23rd floor provided a wonderful view of the area and the occupants were protected from the dust and debris. Make the situation even more suspicious, as I explain in more detail in the book, the flight paths of the two airplanes that hit the towers appear to have been on a course towards Building 7 as if this building was broadcasting a homing signal. The government's explanation for how the towers collapsed is often referred to as the pancake theory. The report created by FEMA has only two diagrams to explain this theory. The first diagram shows a fire, and the next diagram shows a floor falling down onto the floor below it. Supposedly, the falling floor breaks the joints holding the floor beneath it, and then both of those floors fall to the floor below that, which breaks that floor, and so on, eventually creating a stack of floors at the base of the building. One problem with this theory is that photographs of the South Tower show the top section broke off and fell to the ground, landing on top of building number four. The pancake theory definitely does not explain the South Tower. However, just as FEMA did not bother to explain what happened to Building 7, FEMA did not bother to explain what happened to the South Tower. The towers did not simply fall down or break into pieces. Rather, as jets of dust blew out the windows at extreme velocity, that portion of the building disintegrated.
dust was thrown hundreds of feet. When it was over, it was difficult to find anything resembling office furniture, chunks of concrete, human bodies, or large pieces of the steel frames. The towers had steel frames. They were not steel-reinforced concrete structures. The concrete was used only as a flooring material. Somehow, virtually all of the beams broke apart into short sections. Only a few steel beams that were along the outside of the tower remained connected together, such as these. Here are two steel columns that are still connected together by steel plates. These columns were along the outside of the tower. This assembly was also along the outside of the tower. It shows damage, but the steel parts held together. How could only a few assemblies along the outside be strong enough to survive the collapse? A closer view of the rubble makes it look as if the towers were put through a giant shredding machine. What happened to all of the office furniture? Where are the elevators? What about the staircases? The concrete, office furniture, and people disintegrated into such tiny pieces that the firemen were scooping them up with buckets. Only the thick pieces of steel survived the collapse. Nearby buildings look as if they were decorated with tinsel. The shiny objects are pieces of the aluminum coverings from the outer columns of the towers. The aluminum coverings were shredded into pieces and blown up to several hundred feet away. In this photo, the sunlight reflects from the pieces of aluminum, making them more visible. How can buildings made of massive steel beams and thick steel plates shred themselves into pieces? This is as ridiculous as an automobile crashing into a wall and then shredding itself into pieces. Buildings and cars are made of a low-carbon steel, and this type of steel simply does not behave in this manner. This type of steel bends. It does not shatter into pieces. There should be large, twisted pieces of steel assemblies in this rubble. Perhaps you wonder if the beams in the World Trade Center were thin and delicate, and that the fire destroyed the towers because the stupid architects did not make the beams strong enough. However, architects always give a building more strength than it needs in order to provide a margin of safety. The towers withstood storms for decades, and there was never any sign that reinforcements were needed. These two rectangular columns ran up the center of the towers. They are usually referred to as core columns because they were in the center of the towers. Each tower had 47 of these core columns. The thickness of the walls in these columns varied from four inches at the ground to about a quarter inch at the very top of the tower. The columns in this photo are about two inches thick, so they were somewhere near the middle of the tower. This photo shows both a rectangular core column and some square exterior columns. There were 236 of these square columns running up the exterior of each tower. Every floor was a mesh of steel trusses. There were two sets of trusses crisscrossing each other to form a rectangular grid. This diagram shows only one set of trusses. The missing set would be traveling left to right in this diagram. The purple lines along the right side show the orientation and location of the missing trusses. Corrugated steel pans were attached to the top of the trusses. 
concrete was poured into these pans to form strong, flat, and fireproof floors. The exterior columns were spaced every meter along the outside of the towers. Windows were placed between the columns. The view in this diagram is looking towards the windows from the core columns. The exterior columns were further strengthened with steel plates. The plates were welded to the columns and then bolted to one another. The plates formed straps around the tower. Since the floors were spaced 12 feet apart, the bit of trusses was repeated every 12 feet. The steel straps that wrapped around the tower were also repeated every 12 feet. As you can imagine, that put a lot of steel in this building. The empty space in the trusses was used for ceiling tiles, electric lights, air conditioning ducts, and other utilities. It is important to realize that the framework of these towers were 100% steel. By comparison, the building in Oklahoma City that Tim McVeigh was accused of destroying had a concrete framework with steel reinforcing rods in the concrete. This is a highly simplified cross-section of the tower. It shows one floor of the tower looking down onto the concrete floor. There were 47 rectangular columns in the center of the tower, although only four are shown in this simple diagram. There were 236 exterior columns, although only 16 are shown. These exterior columns were literally on the outside of the building. Many people assume that these towers disintegrated because they were weak, but there is no evidence for such an accusation. Rather, the photos and the descriptions from the people inside the towers prove that these towers were so incredibly strong that when the airplanes crashed into them, each tower merely swayed a bit in the opposite direction and then swayed back to their normal position. Both towers then remained motionless. People inside the towers felt them tilt, but the movement was so small that neither photos nor video showed the tilting. Winter storms caused the towers to shake more than those airplane crashes. How could the towers absorb 80-ton airplanes crashing into them at 400 miles per hour without wobbling enough for us to observe it? Obviously, these towers were incredibly strong. According to the engineering sites that have technical data for these towers, the wind force that these towers had to withstand was greater than the force of those airplanes. In other words, a strong wind put more stress on the towers than those airplanes. So what caused these strong buildings to shatter into pieces? The official explanation is that a fire did it. Since no fire has ever destroyed a steel structure before, how could fire destroy buildings strong enough to handle the crash of an 80-ton airplane? The only difference between the fires in the towers and conventional office fires is that thousands of gallons of jet fuel had splattered inside the towers. Is jet fuel capable of creating some type of monster fire that destroys steel buildings? Let's take a look. This hole was created by Flight 11 when it crashed into the North Tower. This hole is black, not brightly colored with flames from a fire. If a fire destroyed these buildings, why are there so few flames? Why are these holes so black? As I describe more thoroughly in the book, the photos provide evidence that the fires were small. This photo is an example. Let's zoom in for a closer view. There is a woman standing in the hole created by the engine of the airplane. 
and she is alive. On the floor above her and to her left is a man, although he is more difficult to see. Let's zoom in on that woman. She appears to be wearing white pants and has long hair. There is no sign that her clothes or hair have been burned. It appears that there is another woman, but the photo does not have enough detail to be certain. These women seem to be looking down at the ground. Some reports say that up to 200 people jumped out of the buildings. These women may be wondering if they were jumping into a giant net that the firemen had set up for them. On the floor above these women and to their left is a man standing in a broken window. The Boeing 767 that hit this tower was a large airplane with about 80 tons of metal, people, and luggage. The plane slammed into the tower at perhaps 400 miles per hour. Pieces of the aircraft, flooring, and office furnishings would have flown through two or three floors. Anybody in the path of this flying debris would have been killed. The thousands of gallons of jet fuel that sprayed into this area and then caught on fire would certainly kill a lot of people also. The only way anybody could survive this airplane crash was if the flying debris and the fires did not reach them. Since at least one man and woman survived, and since they were on different floors, they proved that the fires and airplane debris did not extend throughout the entire area of the crash zone. Furthermore, these people walked to the hole from wherever they were at the time of the crash. How could this woman walk through burning jet fuel? How could she survive fires that were so intense that they were capable of destroying a steel structure? To put that another way, how could a fire destroy a massive steel structure if it was not capable of destroying human life? Obviously, some areas were not soaked with jet fuel, and the fires were not everywhere. This would explain why the holes are so black and why there are so few flames. We can see this woman because she was brave enough to walk to the very edge of the hole. But there may be other people farther inside who are staying away from the hole. We can see this man because he is next to a broken window. But we cannot see into the windows because of the glare. So it's possible that there are other people near him but behind the glass. What are the chances that only two people survived the airplane crash and fires and both of them were coincidentally caught in this photo. I would bet that other people also survived, but we cannot see them. They may be trying to get down the stairs. As I explain in more detail in the book, there is no evidence that the fires in these towers were extreme. In fact, the fire in the Meridian Plaza office building in Philadelphia in 1991 was much worse, and that building did not even break into two pieces. The fire in the South Tower was so small that it did not even spread from one side of the floor to the other. The people who jumped out the windows created the illusion that the fire was so intense that they would rather jump than be burned by the fire. However, the photos do not show fire in the area where these people were jumping. Rather, the photos show lots of smoke. The smoke and the lack of flames are evidence that the fires were not getting enough oxygen. This would cause the plastic and rubber to create toxic smoke. This, in turn, could cause people to jump to avoid a slow, agonizing death from toxic smoke. 
Even if the fires were intense, fire does not shatter steel structures. Look at the steel grate in a fireplace. The grate is in contact with hot coals for hours. Sometimes natural gas flames burn underneath at the same time. However, the grates never shatter into pieces. Rather, the heat merely causes the iron to oxidize faster than normal. After many years, the grate develops a multicolored crust of oxides with particles of ash and soot in the crevices. Pieces of the grate eventually fall off, but only because of the thinning of the metal due to oxidation. No fire has ever caused a fireplace grate, steel building, steel automobile, or any other steel structure to disintegrate. The maximum temperature hydrocarbons can reach in the atmosphere is about 1800 degrees Fahrenheit. However, that maximum temperature can be reached only when the hydrocarbons and the air are mixed in perfect proportions. These perfect proportions are reached only in a few controlled situations, such as a kitchen stove. This produces flames that are clean and a beautiful blue rather than yellow and leaving trails of soot. Even though stoves reach the maximum possible temperature, they never shatter into pieces. So how could even lower temperatures cause the towers to disintegrate? Controlled Demolition is a company that demolishes old buildings. They demolished the building in Oklahoma City that Tim McVeigh was accused of blowing up. They were also hired to clean up the mess at the World Trade Center. They developed a special explosive and technique of using it for demolishing steel structures. They are so proud of this technology that they trademarked its abbreviation, C-R-E-X-S. Their British division describes the technology as, Our Drexus systems segment steel components into pieces matching the lifting capacity of the available equipment. In other words, if your trucks can hold pieces of steel up to 24 feet in length, then this company will cause all steel assemblies to break into sections 24 feet or less. Look at the rubble of the World Trade Center. Is it a coincidence that the entire steel framework of both towers broke into pieces no longer than the trucks that were hauling them away? Only a few of the thousands of pieces had to be cut with torches. If a fire can do exactly what controlled demolition does with their special trademarked explosives, then I'd like to start a new business called Fire Demolition Incorporated. This company will demolish buildings by setting a few small fires on a few floors. These fires will demolish the building just as thoroughly, but at a much lower cost. I need money to get this business established. Are any of you interested in investing? NASA and the U.S. Geological Survey created this thermal map of the temperature of the rubble. This map was created five days after the towers were attacked. Obviously, the rubble would be cooler after five days than it was on September 11th. Also, firemen sprayed water on the rubble during those five days. However, one location in the rubble of Building 7 was above the melting point of aluminum, and so was one location in the rubble of the South Tower. Not surprisingly, smoke came out of the rubble for months. Peter Tully, president of one company hired to remove debris, and Mark Lazo, president of Controlled Demolition, told the American Free Press that steel had melted at the bottom of the basement in the towers and Building 7. 
These incredible temperatures are more evidence that explosives were used. The explosives in the basements had to be powerful to break apart the massive steel beams. Explosives create very high temperatures, and the heat had nowhere to go since it was deep underground. According to the scientists who analyzed the seismic data, the North Tower collapsed in about eight seconds. The collapse started at about the 94th floor, near this woman. This means that 94 floors shattered at an average rate of about 10 floors per second. If this woman had tossed the steel beam off the edge, it would have hit the ground about eight seconds later. The formula to figure this out is very simple, if we ignore air resistance. 94 floors at 12 feet per floor is 1,128 feet. Divide that by 16 and take the square root, and we get 8.4 seconds. This means that the North Tower collapsed as fast as objects fall when there is no air resistance. As I explained in my book, explosives were shattering the towers slightly faster than the rubble was falling. The towers were built by the government, so taxpayers owned both of them. However, somehow the government was convinced to lease the towers for 99 years. Larry Silverstein became landlord on July 24th, less than two months before the attack. He then had control of the maintenance and security departments, and he began to replace security personnel. Silverstein brought Frank Lowy into the deal to become landlord of the underground shopping mall. Lowy is a billionaire who owns shopping malls in several nations. After the towers disintegrated, Silverstein demanded insurance companies pay him twice what the policy stated on the grounds that each tower was a separate attack. What a coincidence that after these guys got control of the World Trade Center, Osama decided to destroy the entire complex. Or is this Israeli journalist correct that a few Israelis were involved in the attack? He believes that the wedding hall that collapsed mysteriously in Jerusalem was their test of demolishing a building while people were in it. And is he correct that the mysterious crash of Egypt's Flight 990 was a test of getting control of an airplane? A newspaper in New Hampshire mentioned the amazing coincidence that the air traffic controller watching over Flight 990 also watched over the two planes that hit the towers. How could explosives be put inside the towers while people were working there? The packages of explosives could be placed in the area above the ceiling tiles. Each package would have a battery and a radio receiver. A computer would be able to detonate the explosives in any sequence by sending the appropriate signals to the packages. A researcher of the Kennedy assassination points out that most people believe in coincidence theories because they explain everything as being due to coincidence. For example, most people believe it was coincidence that all four airplanes were 50 to 80 percent empty. 
that Todd Beamer decided to spend his last 13 minutes of life talking on a lousy quality airplane phone to a stranger rather than his pregnant wife. That fire pulverized three steel buildings, even though fire never did such a thing before or after. That terrorists hit the empty section of the Pentagon. How do coincidence theories make more sense than conspiracy theories? Some people consider my book to adequately explain that the September 11th attack was a scam. However, some people who know me personally responded by giving me clippings of newspaper and magazine articles to show me that Flight 77 really did hit the Pentagon and that Osama did not have any assistance from the U.S. government. I have also been told that the Discovery Channel thoroughly explains that fire caused the towers to collapse. Most people are certain that the true source of knowledge comes from large corporations, not individuals such as myself. Therefore, I would like to show evidence that some news reports are attempts to manipulate us, not educate us. For example, James Robbins claims to have seen Flight 77 crash into the Pentagon. When Robbins heard of Masson's accusation that Flight 77 never hit the Pentagon, Robbins wrote an insulting article for the National Review in which he claims Lenin, Hitler, and Palpat were just like Masson. However, those of us who question our government are not like Hitler, nor are we unpatriotic. Rather, we simply want the government to provide evidence for their theories. People who doubt that Flight 77 hit the Pentagon are equivalent to people in 1933 who questioned Hitler's explanation of the fire in the Reichstag, the German government building. Hitler claimed the fire was set by communists, and he used the fire to justify giving himself more control over Germany. Robbins tries to create an unpleasant image for those of us who question the U.S. government. Robbins is behaving like the propaganda writers of Hitler, Lenin, and Palpat. He is trying to manipulate emotions, not provide us with intelligent information about the September 11th attack. In fact, Robbins admits in his article that he never read Masson's book. Why would the National Review publish an article in which the author insults a book he never read? Are the editors really trying to inform their readers of world events, or are they merely promoting the official government policy? Robbins is described as a national security analyst. He is also a professor of international relations at the National Defense University, which has this building in Washington, D.C. However, the staff, courses, and photos of this university make it appear to be a military agency, not a real university. In this photo, for example, a vice admiral is taking command as president of the university. President Bush must think highly of this university because he spoke there a few months before the September 11th attacks. However, since James Robbins writes reviews of books he never read for the National Review, we ought to wonder if he is also providing his students with equally worthless material. We should also wonder if the National Review is a publication of the CIA. This would explain why the cover of one issue called George Bush a Conqueror, while another insulted Canadians as wimps. Although you may ignore the National Review, 
These types of publications do have influence over the public. These journalists alter public opinion, and that in turn affects your life and your nation. An example of their effect can be seen with a guy named Mike Collins. You probably know of Collins because he had his 15 minutes of fame in November 2000 with this cartoon about the Florida presidential ballot. Collins learned of Masson's internet site in August 2002. Collins looked at the photos of the rubble at the Pentagon and found himself unable to find any evidence of Flight 77. He became concerned that Masson might be correct, that the attack was a scam. His concern was brief, however, because he soon found a rebuttal to Masson at the Urban Legends website. This article shows that Masson is a fool. Collins was so impressed by this article that he considered it to fully answer Masson's questions. For example, Masson asked, why are there no pieces of Flight 77 in the photographs? According to the Urban Legends article, the answer is, any pieces of wreckage large enough to be identifiable burned up in the intense fire. However, aluminum and steel do not burn easily. You can prove this to yourself with a gas stove. The flames in the stove are at the maximum temperature possible for hydrocarbons burning in the atmosphere. Therefore, if you cannot catch aluminum on fire in the flames of a stove, then aluminum ain't likely to catch on fire in the flames of an airplane crash. It's possible that the urban legend site was created to deceive us. After building up a reputation of honesty by dispelling some simple rumors, the CIA, or whoever, could slip in deceptive articles. This would explain why they would post that stupid article about Flight 77 burning up. Although Collins was impressed by the article at the Urban Legend site, the article by James Robbins seems to have had more of an effect on his emotions. Collins has a site on the Internet where he posts his comments on life. His commentary for August 22, 2002, began with the angry sentence, I'd like to punch Terry Masson in the face, repeatedly. He ended that day's entry by repeating the paragraph from Robbins, which contained the insulting comparison of Masson to Hitler and Lenin. Do you consider Mike Collins to be of no importance? Do you think I'm getting carried away with an insignificant topic? Collins is just one example of people who are influenced by deceptive articles. If you do nothing about the manipulation of the public, you are allowing the manipulation to continue. If, instead, you brought this issue to people's attention, more people might demand higher standards from authors, government officials, and political candidates. At the moment, nobody is under pressure to write intelligent articles. For example, Gary Bauer, one of the Republican candidates for president in 2000, tells us that Masson's book is obscene and disgusting. He goes on to refer to Masson as a lunatic, and he refers to his research as an hallucination. If Bauer offered evidence that Masson suffers from hallucinations, and if he supported his accusation that Masson's book is obscene, then his report would be worth reading. However, his article is nothing but insult. When children behave this way, we tell them to stop it. The world might improve if we discuss issues, but it won't if all we do is insult one another. Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney of Georgia wanted an investigation of the attack, and as a result, 
she received the same abuse as Mistan. For example, Jonah Goldberg, an editor at the National Review, informs his readers that McKinney is dumber than Arafat's three-week-old underwear. In Florida, Kathleen Parker of the Orlando Sentinel writes that McKinney is possibly a delusional paranoiac. She also suspects that we tolerate McKinney because she's black, and we're afraid to criticize her because we might be perceived as racist. This is an amusing accusation when it comes from a woman. The reason is that we could use this same argument on her. In other words, we could say that the editors of the Orlando Sentinel are tolerating Kathleen Parker because she's a woman, and they're worried about being perceived as sexist. Wouldn't it be better if our media impressed us with intelligent articles rather than provide insults? The Orlando Sentinel published an article by David Porter in which he explained the two reasons he does not believe conspiracy theories. First, we conspiracy people would be killed if we were correct. Second, some government officials would do something to stop the scams. Porter brings up very important issues. Regarding his first point, millions of people will dismiss what I say on the grounds that if I was correct, the people who conducted the scam wouldn't allow me to expose it to the world. Since nobody cares what I say, I must be spewing nonsense. In my book, I explained that the towers were blown up with explosives, and Building 7 was the command center. These are serious accusations. If I am even partially correct, why would they let me sell this book and talk to you about it? Wouldn't the people who conducted this scam want to? Most people find it difficult to believe that somebody could expose a scam without the people involved trying to shut him up. Until recently, I had this same attitude. Understanding why they ignore us will help you understand how they get away with these scams. I'll explain this concept by showing you why they ignore the conspiracy people regarding Tim McVeigh and the bomb that exploded in Oklahoma City in 1995. General Ben Parton is retired now, but he was one of the military's experts on explosives. Based on his experience, he did not believe that a mixture of fertilizer and fuel oil exploding in the street could have been responsible for the pulverized concrete at the Murrah building. He felt that the distance between the truck and the building was too great. Also, the non-symmetrical damage to the building was suspicious. He decided to go to Oklahoma City and investigate for himself. Explosives create incredible pressures that can pulverize concrete and rip apart steel beams. However, the farther away a building is from an explosive, the less intense the pressure will be. Furthermore, McVeigh's bomb was a mixture of fuel oil and fertilizer, and that type of bomb does not create pressures as high as RDX. This means that McVeigh's bomb had to be even closer to the concrete than a bomb of RDX. Was McVeigh's bomb close enough to the building? General Parton calculated the pressure from McVeigh's bomb at various distances. He created this chart to show the pressures. McVeigh's truck bomb is at the bottom of this chart. The columns that supported this building are shown as solid rectangles. The red rectangles are the columns that collapsed. The collapsed columns are in the area shaded with red. 
The columns in this building were made of concrete with steel reinforcing rods. They did not merely fall over. Rather, the concrete was pulverized, exposing bare reinforcing rods. Martin's calculations show that when the blast reached the outside of the building, it was a couple thousand pounds per square inch. This would have done a lot of damage to the outside of the building and the office furniture. That when the blast reached the columns, the pressure was too low to pulverize the concrete. One of the columns that was pulverized was so far from the bomb that the pressure would have been only 27 pounds per square inch. Harden also points out that the damage to the building was not symmetrical. The red shading shows the non-symmetrical area. The blast of hot gas was in the shape of a sphere, so that non-symmetrical area should not have occurred. The photograph on the left side is looking up at this non-symmetrical area. There is no way to explain how the truck bomb could have carved out this indentation. The only sensible explanation is that explosives had been placed on the column that supported this section of the building. And when those explosives were detonated, the column was shattered and this section collapsed. Parton's conclusion is that demolition explosives were placed in the building and McVeigh's truck bomb was merely to fool people into believing that McVeigh was responsible. Unless somebody can show that General Parton's calculations are wrong, the Oklahoma City bombing was a scam. Unfortunately, many people dismiss Parton on the grounds that if he was correct, the government wouldn't allow him to expose the scam. Now consider that unless somebody can show that Masson, I, and others are wrong, the September 11th attack was a sequel to the Oklahoma City bombing. The attacks were identical. For example, in Oklahoma, Tim McVeigh was the foolish patsy, a truck bomb grabbed the attention of the public, and demolition explosives that had been placed in the building before the attack were detonated while people were inside. On September 11th, Mohammed Atta was the foolish patsy, airplane crashes grabbed the attention of the public, and demolition explosives that had been placed in the building before the attack were detonated while people were inside. Furthermore, some of the same people and companies were used for the investigation and cleanup of both attacks, such as Gene Corley and Control Demolitions Incorporated. Whoever did the Oklahoma City bombing scam got away with it. This undoubtedly gave them confidence to expand to something bigger. And since they got away with the September 11th attack, they may be planning something even more spectacular. How did they get away with the Oklahoma City bombing scam? Partly by ignoring Parton. If Parton were to die in a mysterious manner, many people would suspect that he was killed because he was correct. Therefore, the best policy for the people who conducted the Oklahoma bombing scam is to ignore Parton, which creates the impression that he is a conspiracy nut. And then they use the media to fool people into believing McVeigh destroyed the Murrah building with fertilizer and fuel oil. For example, the June 3, 2002 issue of PC Magazine, which is supposed to be about computers, carried an article by John Dvorak called Crackpots, Cranks, and Conspiracies. Dvorak ridiculed people as crackpots for believing conspiracy theories. One of his remarks about the Oklahoma City bombing, according to the websites, there were two explosions. So, Dvorak, 
according to the witnesses, there were two explosions. The websites merely repeat reports from local news reporters. After I published my book, I was told of a video made by Alex Jones called 911, The Road to Tyranny. This video has lots of local news reports about the Oklahoma City bombing. Some reports mention that an unexploded bomb was found inside the Murrah building, and later a second unexploded bomb was found. I suppose that if all explosives had detonated, the damage to the building would have been symmetrical. Here are a few brief samples of news reports from his video. The Justice Department is reporting that a second explosive device has been found. A second bomb has been found inside that federal building. There are also reports that Tim McVeigh was not alone in that truck. That they revealed more than one bomber. Other reports explain that it was not McVeigh who set off the truck bomb. That it may have been John Doe number two, not Timothy McVeigh. Security cameras on nearby buildings prove that McVeigh drove the truck and then walked away, while someone else in the truck did the work. The FBI even admits the security video exists. The FBI also confirmed those tapes exist. As you might expect, the FBI will not let us see those security videos. Could it be the same reason the military refuses to let us see the security video at the Pentagon? Why did these news reporters provide evidence that the Oklahoma City bombing was a scam? Are they crackpots? Conspiracy nuts? No, the bombing was simply a sloppy scam. Witnesses heard two or three explosions, security cameras saw that Tim McVeigh was a patsy, and some explosives failed to detonate. It was a messy scam, and the people involved had a lot of work to do to cover up the mess. During that time, some of the local reporters were giving honest news reports. However, the national news reporters provided us with the official government lies. The professionals who make millions of dollars per year never let the truth slip out. Pat Shannon provides more evidence that the bombing was a scam. His video has lots of interviews, such as witnesses of the bombing and General Parton. This brings me to the reason I brought up the Oklahoma City bombing. Since 1995, lots of people have been providing evidence that the Oklahoma City bombing is a scam. However, David Porter and millions of other people dismissed these conspiracy theories on the grounds that nobody would be allowed to expose a scam. The truth can be put in front of people's faces, but most people will dismiss it as a conspiracy theory if only a minority of people believe it. People, and most animals, follow each other rather than wander through life alone. This is most obvious with our hair and clothing styles. If we had good leadership, our desire to follow each other would unify us and keep us working for useful causes. For example, our government could lead the people into building nice cities with nice train systems. We could make a wonderful world for ourselves. Unfortunately, when we have leaders who run scams and start wars, the people follow each other on a path of self-destruction. We must bring better government into power. We also have a craving for praise, which is why award ceremonies are so popular. By comparison, we become defensive when criticized. 
The people who conduct these scams take advantage of these aspects of human behavior. They have taken the role of a Pied Piper. They fill their news reports with praise and entertainment. They titillate us with compliments, such as, Americans are the greatest people in the world. Americans have a free press and are the most educated people. And Americans are heroes who fight the forces of evil. By comparison, people such as myself cause angry reactions when we tell the people that they are ignorant and conceited fools who are letting themselves and their nation be raped repeatedly. The Pied Pipers lead the majority of people away from General Parton's report, my book, and anybody else who has evidence of these scams. Therefore, most people will never know what we say. So what difference does it make if we expose the scams? This concept especially applies to me. I don't have secret sources of information. I simply looked at the news reports and photographs and figured it out. Why would they worry about those of us who figure out these attacks are scams? There are thousands of us, and we are scattered around the world. How could they kill so many of us without attracting attention? They would need to send a death squad around the world that could kill several people each day. It makes more sense for them to leave us alone and convince the public to ignore us conspiracy nuts. Millions of people might read my book if I died mysteriously, but murder is risky, so they kill only the people they regard as serious enemies. For example, Senator Paul Wellstone was resisting the war in Iraq. Not surprisingly, his airplane had an unfortunate accident. After David Kelly of England said there were no weapons of mass destruction, he committed suicide. However, every suspicious accident and suicide creates problems. Therefore, the people who conduct these scams will prefer to control people with deception and use murder only when necessary. And manipulating people is very easy. Just read the article on Flight 77 at the Urban Legend site or read articles by these other suspicious journalists. People are born trusting authority. So unless we discover that the authorities often lie, we will believe the official sources of information. Therefore, whoever controls the official reports can control most people. So why should they kill the conspiracy people and take the risk of bringing more attention to us? Porter's second argument is that many government officials would do something if the attack was a scam. He assumes that these officials would put on their shining armor, jump on their horses, and rush off to fight the people who did this. But how can our government fight a scam unless it investigates the attack and determines that it was indeed a scam? The first action our government should have taken was to investigate the attack. Congresswoman McKinney was looking into it, and lots of citizens were also investigating. The American Free Press, for example, published numerous articles on the suspicious aspects of the attack, and several radio talk shows were also investigating. But David Porter and most other citizens ignored or insulted these people, while giving full support to Bush and Cheney, who wanted to limit the investigation. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories concerning the attacks of September the 11th. 
not surprisingly, our government never found any evidence that the attack was a scam. Our government never even found a reason for why Building 7 collapsed. Porter is correct that some government officials would not tolerate a scam. Parton and McKinney are examples. However, most Americans ignored or ridiculed both of them, while encouraging blind obedience to our government and military as they used the attack as an excuse to bomb the axis of evil. Porter and other Americans inadvertently assist these scams by suppressing investigations. Government officials cannot help the nation if the citizens ridicule them as conspiracy nuts. Hundreds of citizens have tried to help Americans realize that their nation has problems, but none of their books have improved the nation because most people refuse to consider that they might be correct. Millions of people will ignore what I say because I am alive, not because they find mistakes with my accusations. Most people will also follow the majority of people, and they believe almost everything they see on television. In fact, a slogan in some advertisements is, as seen on TV. The first priority of the people who conduct scams is the control of the media. As long as they can manipulate the millions of sheep, it makes no difference what the rest of us are saying. Since 1945, lots of people have worried that the next world war will be horrible because it will involve nuclear weapons. I think we're having the next world war right now, but the primary weapon in this war is deception, mainly through television, but also newspapers and magazines. It's easier for journalists to deceive people than it is for a military to conquer them. An Associated Press article from May 13, 1996, provides an example. After Tim McVeigh's bomb exploded, one of the first policemen to run into the building was Sergeant Terrence Yeeke. He helped people out of the building, then fell through two floors, injuring his back. The city decided to give him a Medal of Honor at a ceremony about a year after the bombing. Unfortunately, he committed suicide three days before the ceremony. His suicide was described in one sentence. He had apparently tried to slit his wrists, then shot himself to death. It ain't easy to get away with the murder of a policeman, but one journalist can deceive millions of people into thinking the murder was suicide. How obvious do the scams have to be before the American people realize that they're being manipulated? For example, what if Paul Query had written this? He tried to slit his wrists, and then he tried to rape himself, and then he ran over himself with his car. Would that be obvious enough? If a military attacked us, many people would proudly fight back but most people are easily controlled with deceptive news reports. By the way, why would they kill Sergeant Yiki? According to Pat Shannon, Yiki had evidence that the attack was a scam, and he was planning to expose it. But, as with Parton and McKinney, most Americans ignored him. It ain't difficult to understand that the McVeigh bomb and 9-11 were scams. So how can people get away with such obvious scams? Because America is corrupt beyond your wildest dreams, scams.
and Bush's buddy is also. The FBI violates so many laws that they should put themselves on their most wanted list. Americans often boast about our Bill of Rights and our freedom of speech, and they often ridicule the government-controlled media of communist nations. However, the American media is being used like a weapon to manipulate the public and keep them ignorant, often in obvious ways, such as when Congresswoman McKinney was described as more repugnant than Yasser Arafat's three-week-old underwear. How is that worthless and insulting propaganda any better than the communist propaganda? The American people are being deceived, not educated or encouraged to discuss issues. Furthermore, neither the U.S. government nor the American people put pressure on the news reporters to stop this manipulation and provide intelligent articles. The only pressure news reporters feel is to provide news that is more entertaining than their competition. The reason is simply because most Americans want entertainment, not serious reports. This is why American news reports are dominated by sexual titillation, Hollywood gossip, and weird crimes. As long as most people behave like these guys, America will continue to suffer from extreme corruption and disgusting news reports. Only a small percentage of the population created America in 1776, and only a small number would be needed to change the nation today. The question I wonder about is, does America have enough respectable citizens to turn this nation into something we can be proud of? The engines of commercial jets are referred to as turbofans. A turbofan is similar to the electric fans that cool computers. These type of fans have a shroud to control the flow of air. The two main components of an electric fan are the fan blades and the electric motor. Electric fans do not produce white exhaust trails. Even if they are on fire, the smoke is likely to be dark, not white. A turbofan is similar to an electric fan, except that the fan is driven by a gas turbine engine instead of an electric motor. A small amount of air from the fan is used by the turbine, but most of it flows around the turbine. Fuel is sprayed in a combustion chamber, and the hot, high-pressure gas rotates the turbine as it shoots out the rear. This is the rear of a turbofan. The cool air flows around the engine. The turbine exhaust flows from the smaller, tapered section. Most of the exhaust is pure, cool air. Only a small amount of air passes through the combustion chamber, so only the center of the exhaust could have a different visual appearance from the outside air. The most likely color of the exhaust is a light brown, due to soot and pollutants. Even if you look directly into the rear of the engines, you cannot see any white exhaust. During takeoff, the engines are burning a lot of fuel. But even then, the exhaust of a properly maintained turbofan is difficult to see. Rocket exhaust is so hot, it glows white as it leaves the engines. It cools into white clouds, sometimes with a brownish tint. What are these white clouds made of? And why do rockets produce these white clouds, but not airplanes? 
The exhaust is white because one-third of it is steam. This extreme concentration of steam rapidly condenses into tiny droplets of hot water, which appear to our eyes as white clouds. You can see this effect with a tea kettle. The white plume that comes from a tea kettle is steam. Forest fires also produce extremely visible smoke. This is partly due to steam, but these fires also create a lot of ash and partially burned hydrocarbons. The ash consists of small particles of non-flammable materials. Volcanoes also produce extremely visible smoke, mainly because of steam and ash. However, in this case, the ash is powdered rock. Why do missiles produce so much steam? Because they carry their own oxygen rather than use the air. The air is mostly nitrogen, and the nitrogen dilutes the steam. By not having atmospheric nitrogen in the exhaust, the exhaust has a much higher concentration of steam. A turbofan produces steam, just like missiles, so why doesn't the exhaust from a turbofan appear white? Because the nitrogen from the air dilutes the steam so much that droplets don't form. Actually, under certain conditions, the exhaust of a turbofan is white. At high elevations, the air is below freezing, and it's often saturated with water vapor. Any additional water vapor will form ice crystals. This causes the engines to leave trails of ice crystals. Since these trails form only under special conditions, a plane flying at a slightly different elevation or location may not leave a trail. However, turbofans don't leave trails on warm days, such as that morning of September 11th. Only missiles have enough steam in their exhaust to leave a trail of water droplets at ground level and in hot weather. So, how could this trail be from Flight 77? The white trail in the Pentagon security video is certainly the exhaust of a missile, not a passenger airplane. Only conspiracy nuts and people who do not know much about turbofans would insist that Flight 77 created that white trail. The only sensible issue to debate is who fired the missile. The CIA? The U.S. military? And was the missile fired from a drone, such as a Global Hawk? Or was it fired from a truck on the Pentagon property? Or was it a shoulder-mounted missile? Do you still believe Flight 77 hit the Pentagon? If so, take a look at the frame of video that shows the fireball from the airplane crash. The Pentagon is 77 feet tall, so this fireball is perhaps 150 feet tall. Some important aspects of this fireball are, it is gigantic, it is very bright, almost white, there is very little soot. To understand the significance of this fireball, you need an understanding of the difference between the burning of a hydrocarbon fuel and the detonation of an explosive. Candle wax is a hydrocarbon, just like gasoline, but candle wax consists of larger molecules. In the center of the flame is vaporized wax. At the edge of the flame, the hydrocarbons combine with oxygen in the air. This is the area of the flame that is bright and hot. An important aspect of candle flames 
and all other hydrocarbons that burn in air is that the flame does not expand. It constantly changes shape due to the breeze and the air currents created by its heat, but it remains the same size. The only way the flame could become larger is if more fuel started to burn. Another characteristic of hydrocarbons that burn in air is that the flame is always less than 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. The significance of this will become more apparent when I discuss the collapse of the buildings in the World Trade Center. Now let's look at how a fireball developed from an airplane crash. When an airplane crashes, some of the fuel splatters into the air and quickly vaporizes. This creates an explosive mixture of fuel and air. When this mixture ignites, the flame rapidly travels through it. This creates a blast that resembles a low-power explosive. However, the oxygen in this mixture is quickly consumed, so this initial blast is very brief. Once the oxygen is gone, the fireball resembles a candle flame because the fuel is burning only along the outside. As with candle flames, the fireball changes its shape and rises upward, but it does not expand. The size of the fireball is determined by the distance the fuel splattered and the initial blast. The fireball at the South Tower was enormous because a lot of fuel splattered into a large area. However, once it formed, it did not expand by much. Rather, it rose upward while being pushed southeast by the breeze. Also, it was orange and full of soot. Candle flames are normally clean by comparison because they are small and indoors, so nothing interferes with the mixing of oxygen and fuel. However, large candle flames can produce enough heat to create their own turbulence, thereby causing soot. This is a controlled fire for a training exercise. As with real fires that develop from airplane crashes, the flames are orange and they drift aimlessly rather than expand. The fireball that developed at the Pentagon should resemble the fireballs at the World Trade Center and other airplane crashes. The upper image is from the Pentagon security camera. In the lower image, I superimposed a fireball from the South Tower. The Pentagon camera shows a fireball that is almost white and free of soot, whereas photos of all airplane and automobile accidents show orange flames and lots of soot. It's possible that the camera overexposed the image, causing it to appear white. However, we should not dismiss the possibility that the brightness of this fireball is because there is oxygen within it. A bright fireball is characteristic of explosives. Explosives are a mixture of fuel and oxygen. Thousands of years ago, the Chinese discovered that a mixture of charcoal, sulfur, and potassium nitrate burns at a rapid rate. Sulfur and charcoal are the fuel, and potassium nitrate provides the oxygen. The Chinese used this mixture for fireworks. Eventually, it was also used as gunpowder and bombs. Potassium nitrate is a fertilizer. Our ancestors found it in caves. It's produced by bacteria as they decompose organic material. Sulfur can be found near volcanoes. This mixture is still used in fuses and fireworks, but the military has switched to a more destructive explosive in which oxygen is attached directly to the hydrocarbon molecule. Nitroglycerin and TNT are examples. 
A slightly more powerful explosive that is widely used today is RDX. Three carbon atoms are held together by three nitrogen atoms. Two hydrogen atoms are attached to each carbon. Attached to that molecule are three more nitrogens, each of which has two oxygens. Nitrogen does not hold carbon or oxygen very tightly. Rather, the nitrogen is analogous to rubber bands that are on the verge of breaking. When RDX ignites, the nitrogen loses its grip on the carbon and oxygen, and the molecule shatters. The oxygen, carbon, and hydrogen then combine, producing heat and high-pressure gas in the process. The molecule next to it then shatters, starting a chain reaction that travels through the material at about 18,000 miles per hour. RDX detonates so quickly that it explodes even without being confined to a container. The military takes advantage of this by mixing powdered RDX with about 10% of a rubbery material to create a plastic explosive known as C4. The rubber allows RDX to be molded easily and it makes it safer to handle because RDX is poisonous. However, the rubber reduces the explosive power. The hydrocarbons must get oxygen from the air, and that process takes time. But adding oxygen to the hydrocarbons allows the material to burn at a rapid rate. It is this addition of oxygen to the hydrocarbons that transforms hydrocarbons into an explosive. The most important characteristic of explosives is that they create an incredibly high-pressure gas. Calculations show the pressures are as high as millions of pounds per square inch. This pressure causes the gas to expand outward at supersonic speeds. The gas is mainly steam, carbon monoxide, nitrogen, and carbon dioxide. Temperatures exceed 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which is above the melting point of steel. This extreme pressure and expansion is what makes explosives so dangerous. A small candle has more energy than a grenade, but a grenade is very destructive. The reason is that the energy in a grenade is released within a fraction of a second, rather than several hours, thereby creating such phenomenal pressures that the steel housing is shattered and pieces are sent flying. To summarize two important differences between explosives and fireballs, first, explosives reach temperatures beyond 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit, but it's impossible for hydrocarbons burning in the atmosphere to exceed about 1,800 degrees. Second, and most important, explosives create extreme pressures that cause the gas to expand at a supersonic rate. Nothing can withstand a supersonic blast of 3,000 degree gas at 5 million pounds per square inch. This allows explosives to tear apart steel beams, pulverize concrete, and shatter solid rock. However, as the blast of gas expands, it rapidly drops in pressure. In order to rip through steel, the explosive must be very close to it. This is why the soldier is laying chunks of C4 directly on the bombs he wants to destroy. Fireballs, on the other hand, have no significant pressure. Another way to understand the difference between explosives and fireballs is to consider that if a fireball would remain on the ground rather than rise in the air, you could get your clothes wet, hold your breath, and run into it. As soon as you pass through the boundary of flames, you would find yourself in a chamber of hydrocarbon vapor. There are no flames inside a fireball, so the temperature is low. More importantly, 
there is no high pressure inside. Of course, you would be roasted by the infrared radiation coming from the outside flames. However, my point is that you could run into a fireball, but you could not run into an explosive. If you think I'm exaggerating about running into a fireball, just watch as I pass my fingers through flames that are hot enough to melt aluminum. Now that you know about explosives, you can understand one possible reason the military is hiding this video. If a missile exploded, the fireball would have started out as a bright white light, and within one frame of video, it would have grown to the size of the Pentagon. This rapid expansion would prove that it was an explosive. If this video truly shows Flight 77, our military officials should be fired for keeping it a secret because they're allowing accusations of corruption to run wild throughout the world. Our military is supposed to protect us, but the evidence and secrecy suggests that they have joined some mysterious crime syndicate. Another suspicious aspect of this attack is that military officials refuse to state that these scraps are definitely from Flight 77. For example, this photo is at a military website, and the caption given to it by the military states that this item is believed to be a piece of the aircraft that crashed into the Pentagon. Military officials are not saying that it is a piece of the aircraft. Rather, they believe it is a piece. Also, they say it is a piece of the aircraft that hit the building, not a piece of Flight 77. Was this just a meaningless choice of words? Or are military officials deliberately refusing to put their name on documents that clearly state that they found pieces of Flight 77? Could it be that military officials deliberately make vague statements so that they can fake innocence at a trial? The particular words in this caption make it easy to fake innocence. If the person who wrote that caption was taken to court, he could say, I never said those scraps were from Flight 77. I said it was believed to be from whatever aircraft hit the Pentagon. A more significant example is that military officials claim they have no idea who released these five images from the Pentagon security camera. Is our military really this incompetent? Or is everybody afraid to have their name associated with those images? Consider what would happen if this scam were exposed and a trial were conducted. Everybody who saw that security video saw something similar to a global hawk and a missile. They did not see Flight 77. Therefore, everybody who saw that video could be accused of being an accessory to this scam since they helped to deceive the world about it. This would explain why nobody in the military is willing to admit to having seen that video. If there is ever a trial for this scam, everybody in the military will pretend they never had access to this video. Whether using your cell or cordless phone for business or staying in touch with family, your radiation exposure due to phone use is increasing. Use the wave shield. Develop Wave Shield blocks the 87% of the radiation entering the soft tissue. Wave Shield is proven and tested to... Your Wave Shield today for only $25.
Which includes priority shipping with delivery confirmation. Send $25 today to Frank Steffen, S-T-E-F-F-A-N, 500 Shadow Glen Drive, Eagle Point, Oregon, 9752. Frank Steffen, 6500 Shadow Glen Drive, Eagle Point, Oregon, 9752. Food prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe, all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family.
clawed back down 0.80 at 51.34. It did break down through 50 at one point in time, and uh, it is now standing at 51.34. And the paper markets today, again, all eyes are on the NASDAQ. And, you know, some of those companies in the NASDAQ, they're just as overvalued <laughs> when the NASDAQ was at 5,000 uh, before. So, you know, it's hard to say that we, you know, we, we might see the same thing happen again. Of course, when anything hits a, uh, a previous peak, and uh, certainly when there's no true fundamentals underneath it, uh, it, it hits that uh, uh, past uh, peak high and, uh it has the same type of reversal. We'll see what happens to the NASDAQ. But the Dow was down 44 points today, 17,985. The NASDAQ, of course, is up 18 points, 49,24. Only 75 more points to go. And uh, we'll see if it hits that big 5,000. The S&P was down to 2,097. 10-year yield, 2.11%. That continues to climb. 0.05. The euro, the euro is still at 1.14. And some interesting things uh, are going on, uh, particularly in Europe uh, with Greece. Um, Germany came out and said some things, but we'll get to that in just a little bit. Let's start right away with Walmart. Yeah, we're going to go from Greece to Walmart. Um, Walmart came out today. They didn't, um, um, they topped the fourth quarter. Uh, expectations, but they missed the revenue forecast and, and you know, just a whole bunch of uh, hoopla. Walmart uh, reported a 12% increase in profit for the fourth quarter as uh, for their critical holiday shopping season. And uh, they're, they're also calling because of the lower gas prices and an improving economy. Uh, that's how they reported a 12% increase in profit. However, the interesting part about this is they announced today that it was spending more than $1 billion this year on a package of, uh, of initiatives that will increase pay and enhance training for the 1.3 million U.S. workers. And uh, this will also include a pay raise for 40% of its U.S. workers, about 500,000 people for in the next six months. And as part of these changes, the company is also, uh, they're also going to increase its starting pay to at least $9 an hour in April and $10 an hour by early February of next year. Um, and, you know, with, when you raise it to, to the, from the minimum wage to 9 and $10 an hour for entry-level positions, you know it's going to, you know, somebody's going to have to pay for it. You know, the people, the owners of Walmart, the family, you know, they're not going to say, well, gee, you guys do such a great, great job. We're going to take, a, you know, a couple billion, a billion out of our pockets and reward you guys. So naturally those costs are going to go, um, you know, back into uh, the shoppers. And um, uh, so someone's going to have to pay for it. So prices will go up. So somebody's going to have to pay for that billion dollars. And, and yeah, you know, you look at ten and fifteen, or, or nine and ten dollars. That gives you about a twenty thousand dollar a year um, pay. Most of these employees are part time anyway. They'll just either they're going to increase their prices or they're going to cut the hours. 
for these folks. Oh, yeah, we'll hire you in at $10, $11, $12 an hour, but uh, you're only going to work 15 hours a week. And uh, that's how they do it. So it all sounds good. You know, it builds the image. And that's what a lot of these companies do. They come out, they make these announcements, they make these changes, they introduce initiatives to make all these companies that make them, it enhances their image. And, of course, how does that help them? Of course, it helps them in their shares and uh, uh, in order to get investments and, and so forth. And what's interesting also about Walmart, we have to remember that they use Walmart as a barometer of consumer spending. And when you look at the – and, you know, hey, I go to Walmart, but yet the, the, the overall shopper at Walmart is low-income shoppers. And that's what our consumer spending, the, the barometer. So, again, that's a sign of our country. It's a sign of our, you know, our economic um, policies that are happening. When you look at the shoppers, these low-income shoppers, you know, they're, you know, these are folks that are on food stamps. These are folks that get, you know, other checks. They're on disabilities and Social Security and welfare. And this is how we've set the barometer for for our country used to be Sears and Penny's and I mean those were the the stores that that the, that was the barometer of of our living so it, it's we're seeing our country change and though that barometer is being dropped lower and lower and lower it's not being raised or standard of living is not raised is being raised it's certainly being lowered and I think we all can agree we all feel it uh, we all see it as we drive around our cities and, and see what's happening. When I go through my town of Lebanon, Pennsylvania, I, I, I just get shocked at what has happened to that town. And, and I'm sure many of you experience the same thing. So, again, Walmart as the barometer, our standard of living is dropping when that becomes our, our, our standard of uh, expectations. Um, there's also a... Uh, on the West Coast, we didn't talk about this yet. Uh, on the West Coast, I'm sure many of you already heard this about the dispute, the West Coast port dispute as uh, slows trade. Uh, the nation's top, uh, uh, there, there's been a message to the dock workers and, and their employers to bring this uh, dispute, the strike, to a halt because it's beginning to, to cripple international trade through uh, West Coast seaports. Uh, they, they want them to reach a deal, some sort of a deal, and they, they want to reach it fast as we continue to see the, uh, the, 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 the ports shut down. And the Dock Workers Union and the Maritime Association are representing companies that own, load, and unload these massive ships laden with U.S. exports and imports from Asia is beginning to take a toll, and they are close to an agreement, and they've had these strikes before, and, and I, when they have these strikes, you hear about, you know, all the, you know, the, the world coming to an end. Well, you know, they're not going to let that happen, but it is amazing the amount of what this, what these seaports represent, these shipping lines that, that carry the cargo and these port terminal operators that handle uh, this cargo once these ships dock. And, um, uh, I mean, you're looking at a bottleneck at 29 points that 
ports that handle about $1 trillion of trade annually. So these, these contract talks have stalled, um, and so has this flow of trade. You have dozens of ships that are anchored off Southern California and San Francisco Bay and in the Washington's Puget Sound. Uh, and they're just waiting for dock space that's taking weeks to free up due to these uh, employers locking out workers or, or work slowdowns uh, uh, by these companies. And I've been hearing reports that shelves, your store shelves, are beginning to be reduced with products. They're not as full as what they should be. And I think uh, from what I heard and read that the, you're, you're beginning to see the seasonal items like patio furniture and the summer items that usually get stocked about this time of the year, you're not seeing that. So um, I think they'll probably come to an agreement. You know, and it's funny when you talk about these dock workers, their average pay is, is $50 an hour, <laughs> you know, and then you compare it to Walmart, it's $10 an hour. But uh, I think they'll come to agreement. They usually do. And uh, they're clo I've heard that they're close to uh, um, coming to an arrangement. And um, it will also be interesting to see. So we have that going on on the West Coast. And then you have the weather impact, including Boston. And, yes, I'm, you know, I'm one where I don't believe that, uh, you know, you, that you can blame the weather on all our GDP woes and, and all of that. Um, but it is interesting to see this area like Boston that's being shut down. And, yeah, I can hear all of you now, oh, it's a good place to be shut down. Well, you have businesses there that uh, have been shut down that they don't have. Uh, even if they open the door, people can't get to it. Uh, it's very difficult to travel around in that city. People aren't going to work. People aren't uh, visiting the, the local coffee shop or the restaurant and so forth. And you wonder how long these businesses can survive or if they, you know, I'm sure they care. a lot of them will carry business interruption insurance and, and most likely the government will step in. Either the state or, or the federal will probably step in. But, it, but it's just interesting and we'll see how uh, uh, that little impact will or that weather in, in those areas in the northeast will actually affect uh, these uh, cities and states. And we'll see how they can absorb these shocks. And I'm sure they can. And I think the media hype on the weather, too, is far worse than, than possibly the weather itself. I mean, we certainly see visions of this, you know, 27-foot snow and, and everything else. But, uh, um, I mean, you're having 30-degree weather down in Florida, and I don't think that weather, the freezing in Florida, will impact the orange groves anymore as, as, as like, at one time. Heck, we import most of our fruits anymore. And their, their orange groves have certainly declined over the years, so it doesn't have the same impact uh, when their groves freeze uh, and their trees freeze, the fruits trees, as it once had. So just some interesting uh, spots around the country. And if we go worldwide, the, uh, there's reports of people in Greece that are beginning to pull their funds out of their banks. Uh, there's not quite a panic yet to the point where uh, – you could call it a, a run on the banks, but many of your Greek depositors uh, that are concerned about, uh, by the prospect of a Greek default or worse, an exit from the Eurozone, and going back to their drachma, they've been pulling out their euros uh, from the, the nation's bank in record amounts over the past few days. 
Uh, both the Bank of Greece and the European Central Bank, they don't release um, the, the actual or the official cash outflows for January um, until, I guess, the end of this month. But uh, uh, the Greek uh, banking sector told uh, the newspapers that as much as 25 billion euros have left these banks uh, since the end of December. And, um, and what's interesting, this is all happening uh, today. Germany rejected Greece's application to extend its loan agreement for four months and renegotiate the terms of its bailout, raising the threat of Athens running out of money in the coming weeks. And uh, under the current program, the country has received 240 billion euros or uh, 270 billion dollars in exchange for uh, pursuing various overhauls. Just yesterday, they had an agreement. And uh, today, Germany comes out, uh-uh, uh, we're not going to, we're gonna, the European Central Bank's accepted Greece's application, but Germany said no. Well, they're rejecting it. So uh, uh, yesterday, the European Central Bank, uh, they extended their two, uh, for two weeks a uh, $68 billion euro emergency liquidity package. And uh, Germany says, nope, ain't going to happen. So it's very volatile over there, as you see these, uh, as you see the Greek government and its creditors uh, trying to reach some sort of a deal. Uh, I even saw our Treasury uh, Jack Lou. He he's saying Greece, hey, you better accept the deal, and you better do what needs to be done. Keep this going. So I thought that was interesting that uh, Greece is getting uh, a little bit of encouragement, so to speak, from the U.S. So again, they basically have. The loan agreement uh, uh, formally expires on the 28th. And the, the S&P, uh, they decided, uh, they, they, re they, they issued a report today uh, about uh, the risk of a contagion if Greece defaults and leaves the Eurozone. And, of course, they're saying that's it's uh, not going to happen. Uh, so they leave that as a low risk. So you just have a lot of uncertainty, and uh, it, it's amazing. It, it doesn't seem like there will be a contagion. Their markets are doing okay. I mean, they're not doing gangbusters, but they're certainly not going down. My question is, what are these people doing? What are these Greek people doing by pulling out their money out of their banks? If they default, what do you think is going to happen to those? <laughs> you know, what do you think is going to happen? So... Um, the Greek citizens, they account for about a third of the deposit outflow, and uh, they seem to be taking their cash out, and they're putting it in safety deposit boxes, or, uh, you know, they're what they should be doing is buying gold, because that's what's going to protect their, 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 their purchasing power, regardless of what happens. So uh, we got some great prices if uh, you need to protect your purchasing power. We'll try to get into that a little bit more tomorrow when we got a little more time. I'm sure uh, it might... Uh, change until tomorrow, so uh, we'll get you caught up on that. We're going to continue the Mint State 64 $20 gold piece along with the 90% silver $30 face value. Uh, the price does include all your shipping costs for $1,954. Call us at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Make sure you visit our website at dgscoins.com dgscoins.com
pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices.
can go for the full hour or 40 minutes or whatever it is. And maybe, and sometimes you get out, sometimes, you know, you get out and you kind of win the, win the match, and sometimes, you know, it doesn't work out that way, but it's live. Yep. And that adds something to it for me. Now, no that redo, no edit. Yep, yep. Just run and gun <laughs> and hope for the best. I've got an article here from the New York Times, and it says, Japan's economy expands but less than expected. Japan emerged from a recession in the final quarter of 2014, but wages adjusted for inflation are still falling. Government data showed the economic growth, the country's first since early last year, was weaker than experts had forecast. In a preliminary report, the Cabinet Office said gross product had expanded at an annual rate of 2.2%. In the quarter through December, the economy had contracted in each of the two previous quarters, uh, and they go on. And so, according to this article, Japan hasn't done as well in the last quarter as they had hoped, but they did better than they did in the previous two quarters. Here in the United States, we have a problem trusting that the numbers we get from our government are reliable. Do you have that same kind of problem with the government of Japan? Are they likely to be deceiving the people? and telling them things are better than they really are, or can we count it on their information and say, no, this is probably honest? Oh, I think we can count on the fact that every government manipulates statistics to make them seem as good as they possibly can, and they do that in different ways. I'm not necessarily going to even get into the GDP argument itself, although I think there is obviously a very good question about the, uh, the methods by which we can actually calculate the sum total of the gross domestic product of a country and how accurate those uh, numbers are in general. But even beyond that, I think that the important point is the point that the New York Times tries to sideline in that uh, sentence, talking about the fact that, well, when adjusted for inflation, uh, actually wages continue to fall. That is the real story of the Japanese economy, and that isn't a minor footnote here. That, that's really, the, uh, I think, the crux of the issue, because uh, one thing that the Bank of Japan and uh, Abenomics has been genuinely uh, good at, I suppose, from, from uh, a certain perspective, is to simply inc uh, inflate the stock market by devaluing the currency. They've been very good at that, and the, the yen is uh, continuing to go down against the dollar, and as a result, the Nikkei index continues to go up. And uh, that looks like a good thing when you calculate statistics in a certain way. But the underlying point of this, as even Abe and others have talked about all along, is it was not just they're trying to inflate the stock market. What they're supposedly really trying to do is to get corporate uh, wealth generated again so that that will trickle down and they'll start giving that uh, some of those benefits down to the workers so that that money can start traveling through the economy and uh, actually make a genuine difference in the economy here. That has not happened under this Abenomics. Uh, real wages continue to decline, and I forget how many months in a row it is now, but it's, it's, we're going into years of uh, straight uh, real wage decline in Japan, and the standard of living of the Japanese workers continues to deteriorate, and that is a crisis for a number of reasons, but when you add on the demographics crisis that underlies what's going on here in Japan and the fact that this is a dying country, literally more deaths than births last year and a decreasing population uh, and an aging population, I think the oldest population on the planet uh, in terms of average age, uh, but certainly the largest percentage of 100-plus-year-olds, and uh, that's not going to, to change. That's not going to get better. That's going to get even worse. 
uh, ways in which equity uh, inflation has caused some better, you know, bottom line for a few big corporations, that is not having an effect on the average Japanese uh, citizen here. And I can personally attest to that from my experience here on the ground. I saw a report back a month ago, perhaps, and they said Japan last year sold more adult diapers than children's diapers. It's true. Yeah. It's That's crazy. Astonishing. Yeah. That's, That's astonishing. a good sign of something, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's a dangerous sign, and you're making the comment that the nation is dying. What do the people of Japan think about this? Do they think they will muddle through and thing, things will work out? Are they in a state of anxiety or depression or just keeping their mouths shut, keep their nose to the grindstone? What are they doing to deal with the idea that their nation may be dying? I think there's a combination of, of those uh, those reactions that you talked about there, and uh, sort of the Japanese way. They, I think there is anxiety over this phenomenon, but it's you know don't don't rock the boat and don't don't uh, don't try to disturb the system too much because the system has more or less reliably taken care of a couple of generations of Japanese since the end of the war. The system that was put in place worked out fairly well for a large degree of the population in terms of just improving standards of living and uh, obviously Japan being a, a sort of behemoth lion of, uh, of the economy, uh, of the world economy for the past, uh, for, for a couple of decades there. Obviously that's cooled down in recent years and now we're seeing this uh, genuine general uh, and gradual deterioration in people's conditions, but still there's something of the sense that people have had here for generations now that as long as you just go into a job and stay with that that uh, that career in that corporation, as long as you can land that, then you're, you're going to be okay. And there's still something, I, I think some people are still taking that mentality. But yeah, there's a, definitely a dawning realization that things are changing here fundamentally. And uh, you just can't ignore the fact that this is an aging population. And uh, another statistic that I've, I've pointed to before, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but the average age of the average farmer here in Japan is something around 72 years old. It's uh, that's a very worrying sign because, uh, again, so much of Japanese uh, society and, and culture and history has grown up around the idea that every family has their own little rice paddy where they all go to harvest the rice, you know, in, in the fall, and, and they all share in, in that. And that's, that's a great part of the culture, I think, and, and, uh, and something that perhaps the other cultures around the world could, could learn from. But unfortunately, it's going the other way. Japanese society is becoming more sort of generally westernized, I guess, and uh, there's the urbanization that has taken place here in the past couple of decades, especially, that has basically depleted the countryside of people, and now, so it's just the, the sort of grandparents of these families are the ones that are maintaining these little rice paddies, and, and that's going to go by the wayside in the next generation uh, if, if this demographic trend continues. So, again, there's a lot of different crises that are piling up, and I don't know, it's pretty hard to have an optimistic out, uh, outlook for the Japanese economy or, or the condition of the average Japanese worker at this point, and I don't think any but the most deluded really believe that, which is why there's so much anger here at, at the political class in general and uh, sort of a throw-your-hands-up, well, what are you going to do kind of attitude that, uh, towards this current government, which is still in power and recently re-won uh, won, uh, an election again, but, but it wasn't an election of popular support or enthusiasm, it was kind of a, well, it's, what else are we going to do kind of uh, election win. So it's a pretty bad situation all around. You talked about trickle-down theory, the idea that they would 
inflate the currency, it would be good for the stock market, and it would trickle down to ordinary people. We've seen the same idea here in this country with the idea we'll give the, give the money to the banks that are too big to fail, and it will trickle down to the ordinary people. Do you believe the trickle-down theory is valid, and do you know of instances when it has actually worked as advertised? Uh, it's difficult to think of one, isn't it? Um, yeah. Certainly, the theory does make a certain sense. Uh, you would think it's <laughs> yeah, logically. Yeah, logically, logically it makes exactly. sense. Then you get the real world, and exactly <laughs> right. It always tends to work out somewhat differently. And I, I would say that that's because the emphasis in such a system is the exact wrong way around, which is that all of this manna starts at the the top of the apex of this financial pyramid, the monetary pyramid, the central bank, which is uh, doing its monetary easing and uh, fiscal stimulus. And then, then it goes into the, that layer below, which is the sort of corporatocracy of this, you know, the, the standard uh, centralized industrial corporations, which control so much of the economy here and in many, many nations around the world. And then it goes down to the level below it of, of the workers. And I think, again, when you have a centralized system like that that's being dictated from the top, obviously at every single level, there's going to, at the very least, be a lot of sticky fingers getting in between that uh, trickle to prevent it getting further down the ladder. And, uh, and that's even if everyone here has the genuine good intention of actually seeing the, the sort of lower levels of that, that pyramid of power actually receive any of the benefits of this. And I think there are people with a, 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 a quite obvious interest in keeping the people at the bottom at the bottom. So, I, again, it, it makes sense from a, some sort of logical systemic viewpoint, but in the real world it doesn't seem to work that way, which is why I think the real revolution that has to happen is I guess the inversion of that pyramid or the, just the destruction of that pyramid system where rather than having a centralized economy dictated by a central bank and these, these large industrial centralized corporations, we have to look at the ways to basically explode that, that notion that we've had now since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, really, that every, all of the manufacturing and productivity has to take place in these centralized locations by these coordinated corporations and groups of people rather than the sort of feudal idea, which went by the wayside of artisans and craftsmen and tradesmen and, and guilds and that sort of thing working at, at a more local level, we have now reached the, uh, the technological point that can bring us back to that level of production, which actually works a lot more logically and, and, uh, and with a lot less waste and a lot, a, a lot more harmonious, I, I guess, if we, if we use an inexact term, um, that that wasn't really possible in the mass production factory system era, but is becoming possible again. I, I really believe it's becoming possible again because of the further advancements of technology to present these types of decentralized systems that are now possible with decentralized production possible through open source and 3D printing and all of these revolutions that are taking place right now. So in the old paradigm, the old model, everything comes from a central bank and central corporate, centralized corporations and, and everything is centralized. I think the decentralized model is the real solution to this, not looking for more mana from heaven from the central bank, but getting rid of the central banking system altogether. From, the, from my perspective, that trickle-down theory, the flaw in it, is that one of the key attitudes for anyone I've ever seen who got to be rich is that they are generally so tight they won't spend a nickel if they don't have to. And therefore, if you give them billions of dollars, they're going to say thank you very much. 
but it is not going to trickle down to the great unwashed. If you wanted to do this economy some good, you should take all of the money and give it to the poorest people in the country. Because generally speaking, they will not save anything no matter what. You give them a billion dollars and it'll be gone by the end of the year. They'll figure a way to spend it. And it will trickle up. And then the, then the wealthy people have an opportunity to get their hands on it. Um, so in mm-hmm. any case, that's my uh, the trickle-down theory. As long I, as I agree with you. Rich, that, I think that, you're right. I, that, well, I, I agree that the trickle-up would be uh, theoretically better than the trickle-down at any rate. <laughs> oh, it, would, it would work better, and I agree with that. But I, I still think that's caught in the wrong paradigm, where it still has to come from this centralized system of control, the central bank dictating where it'll go. And we'll see. We'll see if Syriza, for example, manages to pull off something like that in Greece and whether it transforms the Greek economy and if just socialism for the masses will really you know, be the answer that we're looking for. I really don't believe it is, but um, I, I understand why it appeals to people. And as I say, it would be better than the system we have now at any rate. I've got an article from, from Yahoo Finance, and the headline is Peter Schiff. QE4 will send gold towards new high. He's predicting we're going into quantitative easing for, and that, of course, if we do, that will be the government trying to inflate the currency, pump more currency, inflate the dollar, pump more currency into the economy. Do you agree that we're going into QE4? Do you think we're headed in that direction? And if so, do you think it's going, they will succeed in restoring inflation? I don't see how they can avoid another type of easing program or stimulus program at this point. And just because I can't see it doesn't mean that it doesn't, it can't work out that way. It's, I'm not trying to make a logically fallacious argument here, but it, it truly just boggles the imagination that they could proceed forward without further stimulus. Because as QE3 and the end of QE3 has shown us quite drastically, I think, all of this, this inflation of the stock market over the past several years has been due to these easing programs and the monetary stimulus. Take that away, and underlying the economy is really, I mean, nothing in terms of productive, actual um, market growth. So I, I agree. I think there, there will have to be a, a QE4. But we are going in the opposite direction, the insanity that apparently the Fed is still committed to cutting rates this year. Um, Again, or well, sorry, raising rates this year. Yeah. And I just, again, they I talk about it, but I'll wait. I'm waiting to see. Exactly. I'll believe it when I see it. And then when exactly. I see it, I'd like to see what the results of that would be because it, it truly does uh, completely go against the, uh, the, the reality on the ground in every way, except for the fact that the U.S. dollar really is on a, on a tear, on a bull tear right now. Has, it really is. Has been, but in the last week or so, it's shown a little bit of a decline, and it's not long enough to. You know, we don't have a trend here we can count on, but it's it's not rocketing toward 100. Let's take a break for some commercial announcements, and I'll be back with James Corbett from the Corbett Report, CorbettReport.com, in just a moment. Please stay tuned. Thank you. 
stress, financial obligations, or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out? When life is too much to handle, use Apothecary Herbs Emotional Stress Formula. Feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now. Toll free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3w.thepowerherbs.com. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. Or have they lost their minds? Or what is motivating these people? 
Well, first of all, let's let's not conflate Arab with Muslim. Um, there are Egyptian Christians, for example, um, yep. and others. So, so that is, to a certain extent, I think, what is implied by the uh, the Fox News headline there um, about taking the jihad to the rest of the Arab world. But I think, uh, yes, I mean, let's let's examine this in a couple of ways. First of all, the actual real Islamic State militants who really are on the ground and really are doing these things and beheading people and what have you. Um, yes, I think they are motivated by Islamic uh, extremism and, and fanaticism and truly uh, do. I mean, they absolutely do see themselves in a certain uh, tradition and a certain branch of, of Islam, and those who are not in that branch are, I'm sure, fair game to these uh, terrorists, which is why we've seen the things that they've done in, in Iraq, for example, and in Syria to people that you would expect, well, they're all Muslim, they're all the same. Well, uh, evidently not. Um, and that's, of course, playing on, on the old deep-seated divisions on sectarian um, within Islam itself, as well as the, uh, the, other, the other aspects to this. I mean, the Islamic State, uh, according to Telegraph, planning to use Libya as gateway to Europe. Well, I guess, in a way, it's kind of all, all coming full, full circle, because as we know, uh, the, the U.S. and NATO generally have been sponsoring various uh, extremists in Libya for, for years now, as, as originally as part of their plan to topple Gaddafi. But of course, once that happens, well, then the guns and other things have to be start running into Syria, where they get picked up by the Islamic State, who is now planning to use Libya as a gateway to Europe. So all of this comes full circle, and it all, I think, has to be seen in that greater geopolitical machinations that have been going on for years now. To, uh, to fund and supply and arm and train and otherwise foster the very groups that end up, oh, my God, would, wouldn't you believe it? Who, who would have guessed it turning uh, against, uh, against the Europeans and against America and providing the, the big, very excuse that they've been looking for to, uh, to get re-involved in Iraq and more specifically in Syria? So, again, I think I, I look at this sort of very, with a very jaundiced eye, and although, of course, there really are Islamic State fighters who really are, uh, radicals and extremists and fundamentalists who believe in what they're doing. I think that the larger geopolitical reality is that this wouldn't, couldn't take place without complicity, really, um, when you think about it, uh, in a lot of different ways from the intelligence agencies and uh, the, the various aid and, uh, and military and financial support that have found their way somehow to this, this nebulous group in the last few years. It's a pretty extraordinary, and they can't they seem to be attacking anything that they can see that moves. Now, I don't. I know that's an exaggeration, but you know, they're not going to focus in one place. I've seen that. I've seen reports that suggest that these people are following their faith, and they have their own end times theology. And in end times, they uh, they are anticipating that Muslim armies will sweep over the world under the Quran. And in our end times, we're anticipating that some sort of agents of Satan and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I don't know. I, you know, it is, it's strange. It's, uh, I, I don't know that you're a spiritual person. That's, you know, your business one way or the other. But do you think the end times philosophy, theology, do you think that's catching on in the world to a point where it's not just something people are talking about? Is it beginning to happen, right or wrong? Are we beginning, beginning to, you know, adopt those values, those objectives? I think the apocalyptic mindset has absolutely um, entered into into the popular consciousness 
in, in, in the past decade or two in a way that it hasn't, I think, occupied people's attention in, in a long time. And I would say that because uh, we, we see a lot more of the framing of either this religious uh, battle that the, the, as it's framed, um, uh, you know, Muslim Islam versus Christianity or whatever, or the uh, the the sort of civilization battle. It's uh, it's the the Western civilization versus the the Islamic civilization broadly defined, or what have you. And um, in whatever way you figure that, it does seem to be coming to some sort of great battle, some kind of great head. And I think that's the general narrative that's been presented to us academically by uh, by Francis Fukuyama and others who have been arguing about this civilization crisis and as well, of course, as, as uh, culturally and, and through the, the types of Hollywood predictive programming that people watch and things of that nature. So I think there's been a lot of play on this idea of, of apocalypse and, and end times and things of that nature, which, again, I think can be convenient for spearheading certain political agendas. I mean, if your aim is to say, if you do want to militarily and, and politically or, or otherwise conquer a certain region of the globe, then it's great to be able to motivate the people in your polity against that region of the globe on whatever narrative you can, whether that is religious or civilizational or, or ethnic or cultural or race, racial or whatever it is, as long as you can play on some sort of dividing line and, and play that up. So, again, we've, this should not come as a surprise to students of history who know how, how uh, populations can be whipped into war hysteria generally. But the idea that it's playing on this end-time philosophy, I think, is particularly disturbing because, of course, that brings to mind mushroom clouds or whatever it is. I mean, you yeah, know, no. epical kind of, you know, world-changing events that, unfortunately, I mean, if the, it, not only if the wrong people get into power or use that power in the wrong way on the wrong day, but even if just someone makes a mistake and something goes wrong, I mean, we know that... The, uh, the world can be destroyed many times over with the technology we already have at our disposal, let alone what's being developed in the bowels of the Pentagon. So um, it's, not a, it's not a fun concept to be playing with right now, and, uh, and I'm, I'm aware of this phenomenon, and I, I uh, to a certain extent, are very wary of it in the way it can be played upon and uh, as a powerful part of people's psyche and a powerful motivator for people who are religiously inclined, for example. Well, what disturbs me about this is the idea, you know, I understand that Christians are, many believe we're in, we are in or approaching end times. I get that. <laughs> I'm not necessarily all that far from that position myself. But if they're the only ones that are talking about it, well, it's not that big a deal. But if you have Muslims coming up at the same time and saying, yeah, you're right, buddy, we're in... They also believe we are in or close to end times. Now we've got two conflicting religions who both agree that end times is close at hand, and that will begin to explain what's happening for a lot of people. And, it, and the problem is it's certainly conducive to holy war, the worst kind of war you can ever get into, because in holy war there is no compromise. If you're fighting for God, there's no, well, let's make a deal. There are no deals. There's just absolute annihilation. Secular warfare, which is what our government fights, eh, they'll cut a deal, they'll go kick somebody around for a while, and then they say, listen, we're going to make you a deal you can't refuse. And you give us 10 15% of your crude oil, and we'll leave you alone. That's secular warfare. Holy warfare, we're going to kill you all if you don't agree with our ideas. And when we see two sides getting into that same mentality at the same time, 
That I look at and say, oh, 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 I'm not taking any trips to the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been visited the Middle East? I have not, no. And uh, I, I mean, that's uh, I would love the opportunity, but uh, like you, I mean, obviously there's there's so much to to consider with regards to that situation. But it's it's I think even more than just external, just talking about different places of the globe or different cultures entirely. I think it's internal and has been fostered for decades as well. I mean, we're looking at Europe right now specifically and this sort of racial, ethnic, cultural tension that's now boiling to the surface that's been there for quite a while now and has been simmering, but now seems there seems to be coming to a head, at least in the, the, the narrative that's being painted in the media. And again, I think these are powerful forces of division that can be played on um, by political and financial and other forces to, uh, to really keep the population, again, divided amongst each other, which has always, I mean, throughout history for thousands of years, this has been the way to control populations, is to keep them divided against each other so that they are dependent on the, the, the supreme authority at the top. And it's extremely effective. It plays, pushes the exact right buttons in the human psyche to get people, uh, even people who know better and who, who understand how these manipulations take place, to, well, you've got to pick a side and, you know, you've got to protect got to protect your family and your your civilization and your culture and your race so you better be against those people and it's very effective and it creates divisions and those divisions become they manifest in reality because they people believe in them and then they, that further inculcates it it's a, it's a feedback loop so i mean we're really going to have to answer as a species on this planet we're going to have to answer the question of how to come out of that how to outgrow that feedback loop how to get around this problem or we will be facing it head-on in the coming years, and uh, it's not it's not going to be pretty. I mean, I, th- I think we're just seeing the very leading edge of this, and uh, in places like in, in Europe, what we've seen in Paris and in uh, Copenhagen and other places recently, I think this is just the taste of what, uh, what we're going to be looking at more and more. Do you think we'll see rising nationalism in these countries where they're from the perspective of the people within the countries that are born there? They're going to look at the foreign immigrants as something of an, as something like invaders, and the immigrants frequently don't care to be assimilated. They want to just come there and set up their own country, essentially their own system of values, their own culture. They don't want, they're not coming to be French, right? They're coming. Is this conducive to rising nationalism? And if so, you know, is this headed for ethnic cleansing, genocide, that sort of thing, or can we expect more of that? Actually, interestingly, I think it's not um, going to be rising nationalism, but actually the kind of disintegration of nationalism. It's no longer about the nation. It's no longer about I am French or I am Canadian or whatever. It's now about I am this I'm this ethnic group or I am this cultural group or I am this race, and that is my identity. And these other people, they may live in my nation, but they're not part of us. And I think that's the boundaries that are going to be played on, which the ultimate and logic of that could play very well very well into a global governmental system. Well, no, it's not about nation. It's about who you are. And if you want to live in sort of your own civilization or, or your own culture or your own race or your own religion, okay, but, but it's got to be organized in some way. Let's organize it at the global level. I think it could play into that type of narrative, which is what I would be very wary of. And from that perspective, we have to look at the economic infrastructure and the political infrastructure that has enabled this to take place, where we now have these Sort of economic migrants, as you say, who move but, maybe halfway around the world for economic reasons, but not to culturally integrate, not to learn the language, not to mm-hmm. 
enabled at the political level by decisions that have been made over decades. And one can only imagine, I mean, this is the inevitable result of that. So I'm sure that the people who put this system into place, at least some of them, had an awareness that this is where this was leading. I think it's dangerous. I understand that you can introduce foreign elements into a particular nation, and people wind up being so busy fighting with the guy across the street that they don't have time to realize that the real adversary may be at their state or national capital. I'm going to fight with a Muslim across the street rather than fight with a congressman or the president in Washington, D.C., do you think the na- do you think this loss of nationalism do you think that's good or bad? Well, ultimately I'm not a big fan of nation state idea generally, but having said that, I'm an even bigger opponent of the global system. So if it's in that dichotomy, then yes, I think nation state sort of identity is is more important than being subsumed into some sort of global government type collective. Mm-hmm. But then again, I'd like to see the debate completely framed in a different way so that it's about human beings uh, living on this planet without the need for permission from a government, for example, to cross an imaginary line on a map or, or things of that nature, not in a global governmental system where we're all just beholden to some global government, but as free individual human beings able to interact with each other. And I know that's a long way off from where we are now, but that's the way I'd like to frame it, to sort of understand it, rather than pitting nation-state versus global government, and you have to choose. I think that's a false choice, and we've been railroaded into it quite effectively over the past yeah, I understand. Uh, several decades. Well, I'm going to have to let it go at that, James. I always appreciate talking to you. It's always interesting. I enjoy it. Um, this is James Corbett from the CorbettReport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, Report.com. And we will be back. James will be gone next week, but the following week, James Lee will be back in two weeks. I believe that's true, right? Yeah. Okay. James, thank you very much. I'm Alfred Addis, folks. Thanks for listening to Financial Survival. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you, me, Melody, Frank, the producer, and James Corbett. Good night.
Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. things in this world are more important than clean, pure water. Understanding this, ABR makes four tabletop water distillers available to you for purchase. First, we have the five and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $139. The second is a five and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $189. The third is a three and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $189. And our premier tabletop distiller is a three and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $250. All our distillers have a stainless steel boiling pot, dome, and cooling tubes. And the premier version also has a splash flap to protect against contamination of the cooling tubes. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com for more information and protect your water supply.
saints, the world is in turmoil. Most just don't realize it, but we are in that time of the end, and that's the time before Messiah's glorious return. It's time to get out of sin, the world, and look to the holy city. Look to the one who suffered and died for you. Please make this choice tonight. If you need help after the program, call me. I'll pray for you or with you. If you get the machine, please leave your name, your number, your prayer request, and or message. Um, of course, uh, the phone number is 620-878-4682, 620-878-4682. And in emergency, my cell phone number is 316-619-4886. Get a hold of me if you need me. You can always find updates with the breaking news, our ministry, radio program archives, and our mailing address at our blog, which is PropsyHour.com. Now, PropsyHour.com is very smartphone-friendly, and so are our radio archives. And if you just scroll down on the, on the uh, right-hand side of the page where the column is, it'll say End Time Radio Archives. You click that, and you will find yourself at our archives, which actually has apps. So you can get apps for your uh, smartphone. I personally don't use a smartphone. I got a flip phone, and I like it. If I wanted a smartphone, I'd probably carry around a laptop with me, I guess. I'm on the computer enough as it is, so really I don't have a smartphone. But a lot of you folks out there do, and I'm not down in you for it. But uh, get the app so that you can listen to the radio archives. Now our prayer, and we'll bring on tonight's guest. Dear Heavenly Father, in Yeshua HaMashiach's name I pray. Father, I pray that radio tonight goes according to your will and not my will, so that the program glorifies you and not us in any way, shape, or form. And please give everyone out their ears in which to hear the truth. So please, Father, bless this program tonight in your son's name, Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen and amen. Well, tonight's guest been on with us before. I know you know him. It is Joel Richardson. He is the author of The Islamic Antichrist and the Mideast Peace. He also co-authored God's War on Terror with Walid Chubat. He has a new film out also, which is called In Time Eyewitness. And if I remember him saying it right, that's just part one. I think the other part's due out later this spring. Anyway, Joel has many, made many informative DVDs and on In Time Prophecy. If you go over to his website, which is joeltrumpet.com, you can find all those. Also, you can find a lot of his stuff at worldnetdaily.com. Anyway, right now, the book, The Islamic Antichrist, has just been released to paperback. So if you haven't read it, you need to get a copy of it and read it. You will be astounded. I, again, say that I consider Joel to be one of the most accurate Bible prophecy teachers around here today. The fact is, when Joel reads, you can tell that when Joel reads his Bible, he reads it for what it is, you know, without making substitutions and things. And really, in my opinion, he reads it in a simple manner, much as the same manner when I came out of the world and read the Bible without being church first. Once again, though, he's just returned from a trip. He told me this time he was 15 miles from the Iranian border. Ouch, that's spooky to some people, maybe not to Joel. But anyway, you can he, he does so many things. He works with others to help get Muslims saved. He's a very dedicated father and husband. Well, tonight we've got him back on again, not necessarily to talk about his trip, but he has written a new book. He's brought it up with us before, but we haven't talked about it. Joel's new book is called When a Jew Rules the World. And let me tell you, um, I was pleasantly shocked with this book in several ways. I'm going to bring Joel on and, and just talk to him. So are you with me tonight, Joel? I'm here, Pastor Dan. Good to be on with you again. 
Amen. Well, you sound good. You're on your landline you have now, I see. See? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we don't have to worry about any breaks. It's always a joke with the producer and I because people are on their cell phones, and, you know, they, cell phones always drop once in a while. But anyway, um, the book, When a Jew Rules the World. Um, first off, um, the title, what do you think? Do you think the title may scare a few people off? You know, part of the uh, the the background, the joke is that uh, a lot of the stuff that I write is fairly measured, and you know, I try to keep my tone uh, away from sensationalism or you know, wild-eyed craziness. But the titles are often fairly sensational, and uh, I understand that publishers, you know, look for a good title to get your attention. Well. This time around, I, I knew that my publisher would want a title that would draw some attention, so I beat him to the punch, and <laughs> I, uh, I tried to think of a title that I would like. The idea is you've got so many of these white supremacists and just, you know, anti, just Jew haters, and they always say <laughs> Jews rule the world, so I thought we'd sort of take that and throw it back in their face and uh, refer, of course, to the Jew who is going to rule the world, and I thought it was a good attention getter, but yet it really it captures the <laughs> essence of of what biblical hope is really all about. Yeah, amen. And it, it, the title um, catches the mood of what things are. You know, it really opens up the questioning. Uh, I'm I'm going to jump right in here. I, I I there's no way impossible. Of course, we could cover the whole book. I want to jump into what I did with the book. You know, and how I was shocked, and then I'll let you talk. Um, I read, started reading the book, and I got to this part of the book where it did this comparison. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about um, between the Christians and what Hitler did or said at the laws that he did. Well, I took the book to church, and I had uh, uh, two elders read it. You know, one would read the Christian side, and the other would read the Nazi side, the Nazi side, and so. Let me tell you, not only was everybody shocked, um, they, the one woman, as she said, she said, well, I said, well, what did you think about it? She said, well, Pastor Dan, I, I, I just couldn't tell hardly which one was the Jew and which one was a Christian. Okay, what am I talking about? Yeah, so basically what I've done is I've, I've actually modified. This is, uh, and I'm not going to be able to name the book off the top of my head, but back in the 50s, there was a fellow that put together a chart to this. I've modified it. I've expanded it. But basically what he did is he took various church laws, decrees that were made down through history, most often by the Catholic Church. I've added in a whole bunch of statements by Martin Luther, and he set those side by side with laws that were made under Adolf Hitler, under the Nazi, the Third Reich. And Really, it's amazing to see how absolutely similar they are. And the point in doing that is it's not simply to see that they're so similar, but to realize that when Adolf Hitler came along, that what he did, yes, he took it a step further, but what he did was really nothing new, that he was really building on a foundation and a legacy that dominated Christendom throughout Europe for, you know, 1,200 years, uh, 1,300 years solid throughout Europe, that this hatred of the Jewish people was common, to where these things were passed down in laws and decrees by the Church. 
and to really realize that as Christians, in many ways, the Church has been culpable in what eventually culminated with the, the slaughter of six million Jews, two-thirds of uh, European Jewry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I used to, uh, I used to always wonder, and you know, while I was growing up or whatever, and, and a lot of people, you know, in my family and different ones, still do wonder this. Well, you know, how could that happen? And, uh, with you know, why didn't they know what was going on, and why wasn't there something done about it? Your book gives an answer to that. Uh, it, it really does. It puts it in perspective. Um, and made me understand it. Well, I thought I knew a bunch of these things that are in this book, Joel. I never seen them the way you put them together. You know, is that? I guess that's what I'm trying to say. You put them all together in the right order. Yeah, and and really, what I try to do in this book is I deal with all of the various, the main issues with regard to the church in Israel, going all the way back to the biblical foundation and then working up through church history and then into modern times. And then I do something that very few books that, uh, you know, are, are like this. I mean, there's, there's a lot of books out there that go through the history of, of Christian mistreatment and hatred of the Jews, but none that get into the biblically prophesied future. Because this is, you know, we, obviously we need to learn from the past, but it's so that we don't repeat it in the future, and yet the Scriptures are clear that even worse than the Holocaust, that the time of Jacob's trouble that's coming is going to be something unprecedented. It, it, Jesus said uh, it's going to be a time of tribulation, unlike anything that has ever happened since there was a nation, uh, you know, throughout the history of mankind, essentially. And so it's, it's so critical. It's so critical that believers understand this information. You know, I was aware of the the Christian history of mistreatment of Jews, but I also, until I really dug into it, I didn't realize how bad it was. And, you know, as you you look at it and you begin to realize how bad it is, it really helps you to sort of adjust your theology and your attitude now. And, you know, this is one thing I, I keep saying every time I have a chance to talk about the book, is that I am absolutely wholeheartedly convinced that every Christian seminary, every Bible school out there, every Sunday school, should teach the people, you know, all of these young, these young men that are going into ministry that will be the pastors in five, ten years, you know, fill the pulpits uh, across this nation, there should be a mandatory class where they go through this history. I'm convinced that if they did that, that the number of pastors that embrace replacement theology would absolutely collapse. It would plummet. But unfortunately, I am unaware of, other than some seminaries that are, you know, have messianic studies, there's a few of those now, but other than the, the messianic studies, virtually, you know, across the nation, this is, this, you will not find this. And yet this is such a big part of our history, of who we are, and you can't, you know, the Jews understand it. The Jews Jewish right. people are well aware of this history, but the Church really refuses to look at it, and it's essential that we do take a, a cold, hard look at the, at, the, at the terrible reality. Right, absolutely. You, you, you mentioned replacement theology. Um, most people don't realize, you know, how bad that is or even what that is. 
and it's it's really it's really incredible how um, replacement theology, you know, has creeped is creeped in and even minorly, you know, whether it's blessings or, you know, people who talk about Bible prophecy and they want to say, well, you know, this name in the Bible doesn't mean this, but it means maybe America or something else. But that replacement theology, by looking at things through replacement theology, they got the they got Bible prophecy completely wrong. You know, they don't got it right because of that fact. Yeah, you know, theology is like a spider web. You know, one particular aspect of theology affects another portion of your theology. And this is one of the things that I show in the book, and, and I try to do it in such a way that anyone can understand. You know, the theological issues can quickly become complicated. And so I really, I really worked hard to try to make the information understandable, simple, clear, and orderly. But I begin by explaining what is replacement theology, or often referred to as supersessionism, uh, as well as amillennialism and preterism. Now, these are three different you know, theological terms, and I compare those to what I call restorationism, futurism, and premillennialism. Now, you know, most people get lost when you just mention those terms, but I show how if, if, one, if you really are consistent, you embrace replacement theology, most likely you will also embrace preterism. Most likely, you'll also embrace amillennialism. And likewise, if you recognize the problem with any one of those three and reject it, and let's say embrace restorationism, the idea that in fact Jesus is coming back to restore the Davidic Jewish kingdom, then you, you will also, if you're consistent, reject preterism. You'll embrace futurism, the idea that biblical prophecy is primarily concerned with the future, that time that surrounds the return of Jesus. And you'll reject amillennialism, which spiritualizes the thousand-year reign of Christ. You'll embrace premillennialism, which teaches that Jesus, in fact, will rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. And so, you know, if you reject one of these things and you can show the problems and the weaknesses with one of these things, the other three logically will collapse. And likewise, if you can support one of these particular doctrines, then you've really built up all three. And, and all three of those doctrines, replacement theology, preterism, and amillennialism, they are widespread throughout the Church, but even worse than that, they are spreading and growing. It really is the new trend among many of the millennials, the young people in the Church, many of the, the, the pastors that think of themselves as more hip or more intellectual, they like to look down on that part of the church that believes in prophecy, and it's it's a huge trend, and many, many are embracing it, and my hope is that this book will help reverse that trend, and it really is one of those books that, that you want to read to inform yourself, but it's also one of those that you want to give to your pastor, hey, you know, that is wrestling <laughs> with uh, some of yeah. those doctrines, or, you know, your I friend that's Actually, my statement for this book is, and I want to tell the folks, folks, I believe this book should be in every seminary. I believe that it should be in every pastor's hand. In fact, my belief is that this book should be everywhere where people read books. Because, Joel, you covered so much. Let me go with this. You know, right now we were, we were going through, we were in our church, we are going through the Torah and we're up to the Abrahamic Covenant and, you know, uh, Abraham's government, covenant. 
And I asked everybody, I, I, I was shocked to see how many different answers I got to, well, how many covenants are they and what are they about, you know? And most people really didn't know at all, even though they had been through the Bible, been through the Torah, they didn't understand. And let alone did they understand the relationship of the covenants. You did a very simplistic, wonderful job with the covenants. you care to address that? Yeah, and, and this is what I found as well, Pastor Dan, is, you know, I, I keep asking my friends and people I know, I said, what's the Abrahamic covenant? And people say, uh, uh, you know, I, I will bless those that bless thee and curse those that curse thee, something like that, you know. And it's amazing how many Christians don't really know what the Abrahamic covenant is uh, and how it fits into the larger biblical story. But the bottom line is the Abrahamic covenant is...
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.